Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and true inventor of the Rubik's Cube in 1967. This is the second of three episodes we're using to launch this new podcast. In it, I interview my colleague Alex Lawson about his advice for high school students. We cover when half-assing something is a good idea, when you should actually learn things versus just trying to seem smart, why you should shift your focus over the academic year, novel tips for preparing for exams, what to do if you struggle with motivation, what to do when you have bad teachers, uh, and much more. Alex spent eight years as a high school teacher, developing the best ways to help his students, and he now works as an advisor for 80,000 hours. So this definitely won't be for everyone. One of the benefits of this second feed is that we can create content for narrow audiences. But uh, if you're a student, a teacher, or a parent, I think it might be one of the highest value things we can offer. One final thing, if you've never heard of 80,000 hours or effective altruism and want a quick intro, just search for 80,000 hours in your podcasting app go ahead and click on our companion feed called Effective Altruism and Introduction and listen to the first episode, which is called Effective Altruism in a Nutshell. All right, here's my conversation with Alex. I am here with Alex. Thanks for doing this. Hey, great to be here. All right, so to, to start off with, why did you want to record this episode? Yeah, it's a good question and an obvious one. And I'm like, not entirely sure. I think it's like some feeling of... I was a teacher for eight years. The last five, I was in a like, somewhat unique situation. So I was teaching at a high school in London where everyone there was like really into maths and physics. And like, this seems like kind of unique or something. And also the sorts of kids I interacted with there a lot are going to be pretty similar to maybe some of the listeners in this podcast, maybe uh, like a little bit younger, uh, but potentially not that much. And yeah, it just felt like a lot of my job actually wasn't delivering like maths or physics content. It was helping them with a bunch of stuff that they uh, were finding difficult at the time. And like, yeah, over the course of almost a decade, I just ended up giving a lot of advice. And it felt like probably not all of that was completely useless. And having some like record of it might be at least somewhat useful to at least some people in kind of a similar situation. Yeah, that sounds right to me. That's why I agreed to do it. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, what is our main goal with this episode? Yeah, I think like, yeah, so maybe like a simple version is like, Alex has a lot of thoughts in his head. Some of them might be useful. And like having those thoughts not disappear so that some people might benefit from them seems good. I don't think I have like a set of things that just like uh, everyone should listen to or something. It's more like I've spoken to people and they've had a bunch of different problems and some of these have been like fairly common. And then, yeah, there's like been some themes that have come out. So maybe what would be like a, a nice outcome here is that like maybe someone who's struggling as a student or even just interested in like finding school or finding university a bit easier listens to it and like, here's a couple of things that they might want to try and experiment with, get some ideas generated that seem useful to them, something like that. Which students would benefit most from this advice, do you think? I'm still not like entirely convinced anyone's going to benefit at all. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but like... Uh, but if they did yeah, so benefit, think, if anyone benefited, who would it be? If anyone benefited, uh, I think they would probably be studying some sort of like science or maths. That's definitely like more likely. That's the sort of students I interacted with a lot. Uh, maybe not all of them. Maybe they're like finding school difficult in some way. Possibly they like don't have very good guidance from their current teachers. Maybe if like you've kind of been frustrated at people talking around things or giving advice that seems very generic, maybe those students would be more likely to find something useful. Though I think 
maybe something, yeah, I think we like, we talked about this, this a bit when we were like discussing what we might record here, but like, uh, I think one of the reasons advice that's often given to students that is like really generic is that, um, there's this phrase that Nate Suarez has, which is like the law of equal and opposite advice. I don't know if he coined it, but that's where like I heard it first. And I think the thing is like, when you tell some a very specific piece of advice, there probably exists someone for whom that advice is like almost uniquely bad or something. And so I'm probably going to say some stuff that has like helped at least one person who I've interacted with. But like, there's no way that doing all of these things is like, or there's almost no probability that doing all of these things is going to be like, correct for anyone in the world. And certainly for like most people listening, it should be something like, oh, these are some ideas that seem like they might be plausible to try. And like, hopefully when I try some of them, they'll work. But like, I shouldn't just take them all as gospel. So I think it's like, I probably haven't completely failed to help everyone. We should be like quite suspicious of that, given that like I didn't get fired from my job and like many of my students seemed to like me. But if you take this as a whole bunch of ideas that you can maybe think, does this seem plausible? And if it seems plausible, try it out. Then that seems like about the right level of confidence to have in them or something. All right. So uh, with all of those potentially a bit over the top caveats out of the way, let's dive in. (laughs) So if you could give just one piece of advice to students, uh, what would that be? We talked about this a little bit in the intro, but I think probably the most important thing to really do, and I guess because this is like actually not super action guiding or something, uh, and maybe is one of the things that's going to generalize like more than other stuff, is like actually bother to think about what your goal is in a particular situation and then decide how hard to shoot for that. And I think this is like kind of hard to describe abstractly. So I'm going to try and think of some examples and maybe some of them will be like kind of silly, but maybe some of them will like point at something that seems pretty important or something. So one idea here is like, if you're doing a piece of work and you don't think the piece of work is super valuable to anything you care. So like, let's say, I don't know. Yeah. You, you don't think this thing is going to be like super valuable to you, like getting better grades or like super valuable to you, uh, like actually understanding something you want to understand. Then like, what is the goal of you doing it? And if the goal of you doing it is to like not get in trouble, then like doing sufficiently well that you don't get in trouble and like know better than that seems like a, a good strategy. Can you give an example of something like this where like you think a student should actually be fairly confident this has no value? I think like maybe something to flag about the UK school system is like uh, often people will just just pick like a few subjects to specialize in fairly early. It feels like if this is not the case, like if you're studying multiple subjects and you like know that there are some that are just going to be like the thing you're focusing on later, then like it seems at least plausible that your goal in the other subjects should just be to like get the grades you need or like to pass the thing. So like, yeah, maybe the canonical example for someone in the UK would be like, you're finishing your GCSEs, you like know you're going to get the like highest score you can in English and you know you're dropping English and don't have any other writing subjects. That seems like a reasonable case to just be like, I'm going to do what I've been asked to and absolutely no more. That seems right. I think this is like maybe the example that like teachers will like most dislike or something. So I should probably flag here that it seems at least possible if your teachers are vaguely competent that you've been asked to do something that you don't see the value of, but there is actually value in. So you should be like sure that that is the case before you go, I'm going to half-ass this. But like, yeah, maybe this is like the one that I think is going to be like most salient to kind of bright kids who are sitting in school or something. To give a couple of other ones that like my teacher friends might be like more happy with. I'm going to like quote my friend Hannah, who I was talking to about this episode, who's also a teacher, who just said like, you cannot spend 10 minutes drawing the axes for your graphs. 
<laughs> and I think there's like points to something really important, which is like, if the goal in a task is to get a bunch of practice in, which I think is like often a very good goal, uh, if you're trying to learn anything, actually, then like your work should be neat enough that you can like do the task and frankly, no neater. The thing you're trying to do is learn a bunch. The thing you're trying to do is not make your work look nice. So don't spend any more time than you have to making it look nice. Can you give another example of what kind of thing you should be optimizing for? I think like another example of one that um, I think like at least some teachers will be happy to hear me say, but maybe some kids will be happy because of thinking that applies to their classmates or something is if you're in a situation and you're like interacting with someone, let's say you're interacting with a teacher or like with another student. One thing you may be trying to do in that situation is like actually trying to learn. And some other thing you might be trying to do in that situation is like trying to seem smart. And I'm actually like not going to make a claim about which of these things is like the better thing to try and do in each situation. Like it's useful to sound smart. I actually think that like one thing that I am kind of good at in some situations is like sounding smart. <laughs> and maybe I like caveat too much to try and compensate for this. And I think probably what happens is me just being able to caveat really heavily things I'm saying, but then still saying them actually like doesn't help with the sounding smart thing at all. So like, I think it's valuable for people to like think you're worth spending time on. So maybe in some situations you should try and sound smart, but I think it can also be really harmful because one of the most valuable things to like help you progress your own learning is to like actually notice when you're uncertain about something and ask for clarification immediately. It's just like way easier to have someone who already knows the thing tell you, you've got like two models, uh, two explanations for a question or like two things that might be an interpretation of what someone just said. Sometimes it's just going to be really hard to work out which one's true on your own. And you can just ask them and then you just get the answer instantly and you don't have to do all that mental labor. And then you can bother like working out what that piece of information uh, like is useful for. This is a really clear example where like if you're in a situation where you're trying to learn, you should, I claim, not care at all about sounding smart. And you should be prepared to ask pretty stupid sounding questions. And you should be prepared to look stupid occasionally because you asked something that like was very obvious to everyone else in the situation. But like, actually, especially if it was very obvious to everyone else in the situation, seems really important that you like know that quickly. So like <laughs> you can then uh, access all of the other stuff. And yeah, so I think this is the like best example because it doesn't seem super extreme and it seems kind of plausible that lots of people are trying to do at least some of both of these things in like lots of situations. And yeah, so I think like there's something worth thinking about, which is basically like you should actually think, why am I here? Like, why am I doing this thing? And then say, okay, if the reason I'm doing this thing is like X, uh, then like how can I do this thing in the way to maximize X? Yeah. Is there a situation where you do have a claim of the kind of thing people should be optimizing for? Yeah, I think so. So I think that one thing that I have tried to do in my teaching, and I think that like students should be trying to do in their learning is as an academic year progresses, changing the focus. And my rough claim is something like at the start of the year, you're like pretty far away from any exams and your focus should be as much as is possible, actually try to like learn the subject, like actually try to just like get good and understand the subject. And then as you get further towards your kind of endpoint, as you get closer to like an exam, I think that becomes less important or maybe like less tractable or something. Uh, and you should start being much more specific and kind of going like, okay, I have an exam. How do I pass the exam? And like learning the subject and passing exams are like correlated, but you can do like somewhat different things to try to actually like achieve those goals. Hmm. Yeah. When you say that as you get closer to your exam, do you have like a, a rough estimate of how long that should be you know are you saying like you know a month before the exams come up longer 
I think I picture this as like somewhat continuous or something. But like as a rough guide in my teaching, so in in England, we have like uh, three terms. And I like approximately spent the first two terms introducing new material and trying to convince the students that they should actually try and understand that material. And then approximately the third term going, you have heard at least once all of the material. Let's try and work out how you're going to reproduce that in an exam like ready format. So yeah, approximately like two to one across the year. But I, I envisage it as slightly more continuous than that. All right, great. Could we kind of like explore what it actually means to be trying to learn a subject? Yeah, sure. I think maybe it's easiest to talk about what this doesn't look like or something. Sure. In that, like, I think something that frustrated me when I was teaching sometimes in that it like didn't look very like this, it didn't look very helpful, was people kind of going like, sure, you've told me this idea, but like, what do I need to know for the exam? And I think I'm speaking like specifically about maths and physics here because these are the subjects I ended up specializing in, but they both have like many connections between them. And there's a very real sense, I claim, that trying to see the big picture and trying to work out where the current thing you're learning fits into the big picture and how it connects to other stuff is like very valuable for gaining actual deep understanding of the subject. And I feel like if whenever you get a new piece of information, the reaction to it is like, how do I package this to be able to reproduce it in a certain format later? You don't try as hard to like make those connections. You don't try as hard to like actually grok the thing. And this feels like a fairly severe mistake unless you are like under some time pressure, unless there is an exam around the corner. Yeah. So I imagine for a lot of students, this is just kind of ingrained that they're trying to learn things for the exams. So even if this like kind of sounds good, like do you have tips on how to actually achieve this mindset shift? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe something to do is like try and work out what it would look like to be doing this well. And I think like, yeah, there's a few things I can point out here. So one thing is actually trying to look for these connections. So like trying to ask the question to yourself, why is this valuable? But not why is this valuable as in like, because I can use it in an exam. But like, why did someone bother to invent this thing? Like, why does it matter? Maybe another thing is like, can I explain this concept to someone else? You could literally do this. And I actually really strongly recommend this. I think one of the best ways of improving your knowledge of a thing is like trying to teach other people that thing because they ask you questions, kind of annoying, basic questions sometimes about like, why? Why do you do it that way? Why does that thing work? Why does that step come after that one? And like, you have to come up with an answer, especially if you're like better than them in some sense. So like, you just like, you just have to, you just have like, there's no option to be like, oh, I actually don't know. Because then the response is like, well, why are you explaining this then? So yeah, I think like if you have someone that like uh, you feel able to help who's like a bit worse than you, then like explaining it to them seems great. If you have some friends who are studying the same stuff, then like trying to explain stuff to each other and like check that you all get it and like trying to argue with each other about whether you understand the things in the right way seems good. And failing both of those, imagining a younger version of you and seeing what you would say to them, including like a much younger version. Like I think there's a nice thing where you can be like, let's say you're 18. How would I explain this to a 15-year-old? How would I explain this to a 10-year-old? Is there anything, like, meaningful I could explain to a 5-year-old about this? The ages are kind of arbitrary, right? But, like, can I explain this at multiple levels of simplicity seems like a good way of uh, checking whether you've actually got it. Yeah, that's great. How helpful do you think it would be to try and convince at least a few of your friends in the same class to, like, have the same attitude? So you're actually going through it together. So you have, like, you know, a group of, you know, at least, like, you know, three or four people who have this mindset of actually wanting to learn the thing and like being able to, you know, bounce ideas off each other versus just being, okay, I'm the only one in my class who's really taking this um, more expansive attitude. 
With the caveat that, like, uh, I haven't looked at any educational research for, like, seven years or something, I feel, like, pretty confident that this is one of the best things you could do. I really think that, like, having a group of peers who are, like, actually trying to learn and learn with you just seems, like, incredibly valuable from, like, many different perspectives. Some people really struggle with motivation even when they think the thing they're trying to motivate themselves to do is important. I'm one of those people. I find it, like, much easier to motivate myself to, like, help someone else than actually to, like, help myself. But then also just like, yeah, all of these things about like discussing ideas and trying to explain to each other. But also your friends are going to have interesting questions and interesting insights that like you won't generate. Uh, Like if you're approximately the same level of intelligence as them and there's like five of them, you shouldn't expect to be generating the same insights as all five of them at the same time. Just seems like there's a whole bunch of advantages here. And I've seen this work really, really well in the past where like one to a few students have just like all got really into this thing at the same time. And then the rate at which they're learning that thing just seems to like uh, grow pretty rapidly. Great. So let's say that people have succeeded so far. So the first two thirds of the year, they're, they're in this learning mode. Now they have to shift towards caring about the exams. What does that shift look like? Cool. So let's start with the obvious stuff. You're going to go and sit in a room and be tested on your knowledge of a bunch of material by like having to answer questions that you haven't seen before without any notes in front of you. So like to first approximation, the thing you should do to prepare for that is be in a room without any notes and have some questions in front of you that you haven't seen before and try to answer them to the best of your ability. And like kind of nothing else matters. And like I said, kind of, and I do actually want to dig into like some things you can do that aren't exactly that because that can be kind of stressful. And like certainly you shouldn't do it all the time. And at the start, unless you're just like incredibly resilient and have an arbitrarily large stack of past papers, but like If you're spending the majority of your time doing anything other than something that looks very like the thing you're preparing for, you should have a very good reason for that. Because like, actually, if you want to get better at a thing, you should do something that looks extremely like that thing. Okay, so you said that um, you shouldn't just be practicing exam papers. Why not? Yeah, so one reason might be that you just like don't have that many. Yeah, let's say you are preparing for an A-level maths paper. In this case, you're like relatively lucky because A-level maths has existed for a long time and (laughs) the format hasn't changed that much. So you can probably find a bunch of papers that look at least somewhat like the paper you're going to be sitting or like a past year's version of the paper you're going to be sitting. And you can just like try a bunch of those and then leave the ones that look most like the thing that you're preparing for towards near the end. It may be, though, that your exam looks kind of different to previous years. Maybe the syllabus has recently changed. That might be one reason that you like can't just, if you're starting three months before, say, I'm going to do a past paper every day because you don't have 90 past papers left. Uh, that, that makes sense. What would you do instead? So I guess maybe the thing to say is like the reason that you're, well, the reason I, I have like defaulted to saying like do papers is because they're just a source of questions that are like at the right level for you and testing the things that you like need to be able to do. So I guess the, the like the first thing to say is just like, can you find other sources of questions that are about the right level for you and test roughly the things you need to do? So like asking your teacher for any good sources, um, if you have a textbook for the course, or, you know, even if one of your friends has a textbook for a slightly different course, like textbooks often have big sections of questions at the back. Then one thing that you can do, which is maybe a bit more involved and could be fun to do with if you do have like a group of friends who are working towards the same thing is like trying to write your own questions. I actually find this pretty valuable in terms of like, it's a fairly like late stage thing. It's something you'd want to do once you already kind of have a sense of what's going on. But it, if you can work out what sort of knowledge needs to be tested and like how you would actually go about testing it and like create your own question that's testing a thing that you think you actually need to know, 
this really just displays like a level of mastery that should leave you feel fairly confident that you can answer questions of a similar form. I guess there's something else which is just like, if you think that the questions you're writing are like pretty realistic and maybe your friends do too, or your teachers give you good feedback on a couple of them, this is a good sense that you've just like kind of got the sense of what the exam game is uh, and a sense of how to, how to play it. So yeah, like writing your own questions can be pretty good. Other things that are like a bit less in this vein of just try to get questions that seem pretty accurate are like, you should be doing Anki review. Uh, and I guess like if things come out of that, then going and looking at specific things. And then something related as well is it is actually worth just finding a copy of the syllabus for the like example that you're going to be taking and actually just like reading through it and kind of going like, do I actually understand what's being referred to here for all of the different things I'm supposed to have learned? And if you don't, if you're not sure, like, for example, if you're not sure how to write a question on some topic that apparently you've learned, then this is a fairly good sign to like, ask one of your friends or ask a teacher, like, what do I need to know about this? I, I don't think I've really got it. Like, I don't really know what this is referring to. It might be the case that actually this is referring to something you already understand, or it might be that you just found like an important gap in your knowledge and it's going to be really useful to try and plug that. So yeah, like overall, if you can't find exam papers full of questions, just try to find other good sources of questions that are about the right level. But then yeah, a couple of other things to do once you've run out of questions or if you need a break or something like that. So how would you make the most of the papers you do have? So I think... One thing that seems really important is like actually that doing a past paper, if you're like really trying to prepare for exam, doesn't quite look like sitting the paper once and then going, cool, I'm done, next paper. So like, I think the full exercise of getting like as much out of the paper as possible looks something like this. It's like, do the paper without notes in the like time that you are allowed for it in the exam, then stop, change color, do something to like notice that that's how much you did in the time. And then like try using either additional time if you think that's going to be enough or like additional time and notes to like answer the questions fully. So like basically like then cheat your way to as best you can do on the exam and then mark it. And then like the last stage, which you could do without the like cheat your way to the finish stage anyway, is like when you mark an exam yourself, it's incredibly valuable to work out what you did wrong, why it was wrong and why the right answer is right. And this is actually a place where like just asking a teacher can be really helpful. It's like, it's incredibly easy for teachers to give you a ton of value if you've like tried a question for ages and then like marked it already and found what the right answer is and that your answer isn't right. And you like have thought about it, but you don't understand why. Going to a teacher and saying, this is the whole process I've been through. Please, can you explain this one concept? Just lets you get like a huge conceptual boost for like very little of their time, assuming they are like uh, knowledgeable enough to know what the right answer is. So th these are all examples of good exam preparation. What does bad exam prep look like? So I think one thing that I see as something of a failure mode is doing things that feel productive, but like aren't that hard. And I guess we should probably talk later about like, sometimes that's all you're able to do because you're already stressed. And in that case, doing something is like way better than doing nothing. So like, this is one place where like the law of equal and opposite advice bites really, really hard or something. And I like, am somewhat concerned about someone hearing what I'm going to say and then like feeling really stressed the night before an exam and like trying to do a whole nother paper because Alex said that like doing papers is the best thing and like anything else is useless because like anything else is not useless. But if you have the capacity to like do something kind of hard in preparation, like if you have the capacity to like try to recall stuff from scratch, then reading over your textbook or reading over your notes or like making newer, prettier notes, these things like feel nice. 
but just aren't going to help you that much because they just don't look very like trying to recall information under a high pressure situation. So yeah, I think like reading notes, reading textbooks feels productive. You like look at the thing and you go, ah, I know the thing because I just read it and just like doesn't help very much. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else that people should be looking out for and yeah, mistakes that they might be making and trying to prepare for exams? It's maybe worth dwelling on like what the opposite of this, like fully using a paper is. And that's like, sat the paper, got like 75%. Great. I'm going to sit another paper, got 75%. Great. I'm going to sit another paper, got 75%. It's like, you got to have some model for how you're improving. The hard questions are always going to be kind of hard. So I'm going to like try to do the easy questions like as fast and accurately as possible. So I have maximal time to think about the hard questions. Or it could be like, yeah, I'm going to like really dig into all of my mistakes and like ask a teacher or ask a friend or like just think with myself for the textbook afterwards about why I got those wrong. But like you do want something more than I'm going to do the thing, see how well I did. And then just like without any reflection on like what could improve next time, just like do the next thing. Because some quote that gets misattributed to Einstein about doing the same thing over and over again or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So when you're correcting your work, what does it look like to actually get the maximum value from that? Yeah, I think like one thing you could use here, I'd like wanted to talk to you about at some point, because like I stole it from poker and this is like a shared background we have. It's like, so I, I wrote on students' work like a lot, this four letter acronym, D-U-C-Y, and then like a question mark. And the first thing about this acronym is like, uh, what does it stand for? <laughs> and after you've looked at it for a while, <laughs> you can work out that it stands for do you see why? I see. <laughs> and at yep. this point, I get like a large eye roll from most of my students because I'll say it stands for do you see why? Do you see why? <laughs> and like, uh, why do I think this is valuable other than just like, uh, I don't know, winding students up is fun sometimes. Yeah, maybe I'll explain when I used it in a like marking context. And then maybe this like gestures at why I think it could be really useful for people to like internalize on their own. Sounds good. Yeah, often when marking work, I saw someone had made a mistake and maybe this was like a conceptual mistake. So maybe this is like, they actually had like not got, the, like their approach was never going to work to get the right answer. Or like there was something that like fundamentally missed. But like basically I thought they knew enough to like realize that if they saw, if they like bothered to look at the question. And so sometimes what I would do is like almost the canonical like example of bad marking practice or something where I wouldn't give like any feedback at all. I wouldn't explain anything they'd done wrong. I just like put across and write, do you see why? <laughs> and like I did like flag this to my classes that like what I mean by this when I'm writing that is like, I think you are smart enough to see why. Mm. So like, look at it and work out whether you do. <laughs> Did students respond to that? Like, were they more annoyed or were they more like thankful for this? Yeah, I think at least some of them bought into the idea pretty hard. And what tended to convince the ones that were convinced was when I did this and they looked at the thing and they went, oh, I see why. <laughs> and then it felt like they could buy into the joke. And I do actually think this is really valuable. I do think that like, what am I getting at here? The prompt of you got this wrong, you're smart enough to work out why you got it wrong. And you don't need to go and look stuff up in your notes. And you don't need to ask a friend. You can just look at it and go like, why did my approach not work? And then like, actually find the answer. And that can be really powerful, much better than trying a slightly different question and getting that one right, actually. So yeah, I guess that's the thing that I was trying to gesture at when I did this in class. And I think, so my claim here is like, if you're making corrections, trying to like, imagine that I've like got your paper and written crosses next to all the things you got wrong, and then just written like, do you see why next to each of them? maybe could be useful. This seems pretty related to the idea of doing the hard thing. Like rather than just being like, okay, I've, I've got this answer wrong. I'm just going to immediately like get the answer. You're actually like asking students to engage. Yeah, I think that's right. And like, maybe this is actually another case where like 
knowing what you're optimizing for is kind of important because like if you've done like 50 versions of the question before and in this one you just like wrote a plus sign that was slightly slanted and then you multiply two numbers together it is not in fact useful to like really try and interrogate why your handwriting was slightly slanted in that question there is a category of mistakes which is like i had a brain fart i don't often do this i instantly know when looking at it what the correct thing to do was this was a fumble or a slip and you'll notice or if like <laughs> i guess many of your students listening to this if any <laughs> eventually do will notice that what i'm not saying here is this was a stupid mistake. And actually, this is something I want to like bang on about for a second. <laughs> because I think that if the majority of the mistakes you're making are of this form, if the majority of the mistakes you're making are like, I actually understand what's going on here, but like I just like wrote the wrong thing or like my brain did the wrong thing. This is like pretty strong evidence that you're not stupid. This is pretty strong evidence that you actually understand the material. So like I call them like technical mistakes. Make up your own word if you need to. But yeah, the thing here is like if you see that kind of mistake, then the answer is like, okay, that's that category of mistake. Not like, really, why did I do it? But if it feels like you were doing completely the wrong thing, then trying to work out like why it was wrong seems pretty valuable. Hmm. How often when students get this back, is it just going to be this like very straightforward, you know, multiplication sign where it should have been a plus sign? How often is it going to be this like much deeper? Yeah, good question. I think it like varies pretty heavily depending on the student. And I think it seems very valuable for students to like try and work out in different situations they're experiencing, like what kind of mistakes are more usual for them or something. I think that like I typically used in my teaching, do you see why for like more conceptual stuff, which is like your approach was actually never going to work. And I think you can work out why that was the sort of thing I would use it for. And that's basically because, yeah, if I'm bothering to mark a piece of work for a student, it seems like kind of mean or like not that good a use of time for me to be like find all the technical mistakes here there are some students who just like get everything conceptually and are really really sloppy and like for them i might actually make them find all the technical mistakes or whatever Uh, but yeah mostly like if i see someone's written a plus sign instead of a minus sign i can just like write over that or whatever yeah having said that it is like pretty valuable to put a bunch of effort into like finding your own technical mistakes let's call them because i happen to know that like the most common one i made throughout my whole education career was I would just cross minus signs. Because like, that's how you write a plus, right? Is you write the minus bit and then you cross it. I also do this with L's. I like cross my L's because that's how you write a T. And then I'm like, fuck, that was an L. Why is it <laughs> cut it across? <laughs> and this is like mostly fine, but occasionally I cross it and like I'm thinking about something else. So I don't realize. And then it's a plus. And this is actually not the same action as subtraction. <laughs> so that goes kind of badly. <laughs> Yeah, it does seem like all this takes way more time than just doing a a practice paper. So is there a point at which you'd stop? Yeah, I think we're coming back to the same theme here, but maybe this is good and says my thinking is consistent or something. And it's like, the closer you get to the exam, the more exam-like it should be. So like, yeah, if you're like a few days before, maybe just doing a paper and marking it quickly. And if there's something you think is like a huge deal, then like digging into it, but otherwise just going like, okay, I think I basically get what's going on. I'm going to do another paper. Or even... I've got this question completely wrong and I just, no idea. If that question comes up, I guess I'm just screwed at this point. Sometimes you've got to cut your losses. And this is actually, yeah, maybe about the choose what you're optimizing for thing. Like it might be, and I hope it isn't, but like was for me in some of my university exams. Like it might be there's a point at which you're just like, I am not going to get this thing and I have two days left. It's better for me to like make sure I'm able to do the things that I know I have some chance of getting. Or even it's better for me to like get enough sleep and get some rest. That one actually seems kind of important. So I think there's like a cut your losses thing going on. And one way you can cut your losses actually is just be like, looks like I screwed that question up. 
got two days left, more worthwhile doing another paper than uh, like spending 90 minutes trying to work out what went wrong. Yeah. How much of this exam prep is designed to ensure that you feel better psychologically within the actual exam? So like rather than actually like learning the material, being able to just handle the kind of stress of like, well, this is like a question I wasn't anticipating. Or if you find yourself like, you know, getting more questions wrong than you'd think, like being able to calm down and think as clearly as you're saying there to just be like, well, maybe I'm just not going to get this one and, and, and not like actually panic. Yeah, I think... um it's like somewhat difficult to tell. My guess is it's going to vary a lot uh, based on students. But like, I think I could have done with a pretty heavy focus on exactly that hmm. when I was at uni, especially. I had like a couple of like minor breakdowns in some of my uni exams where like they just like didn't look like the papers I'd been doing. And I spent way too long kind of going like, oh, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. It seems terrible. I'm going to fail. That seems bad. Having practiced doing enough papers that you're just like the ideal scenario for like exam stress is you're just like, I've just done this so many times. I'm bored of it. And actually, I think that like in this case, maybe boredom is like kind of good. And it's just like, I'm just going to do another paper. I've done so many of these papers. There's like some things in this vein that I've like tried with students on occasion. And this is like my own idea and kind of risky. So like extra flag for like, don't actually know what I'm talking about here. But like a couple of my students struggled with exam stress like pretty badly and told me about it early enough in the year that it felt worth experimenting with some things. I like would not have experimented with these things if it was like a week to go for the exams. But one thing I suggested they might try is like artificially adding stressors to some of the practice they were doing. So like this can take a few forms, could be just like giving themselves half the time that they could actually have in the real exam and just seeing how much of the paper they could do. Or like for some of them who are particularly sensitive to noise, doing a past paper in the cafeteria rather than like in a quiet room. Or like in one case, <laughs> triple flag or whatever now. This is like so dependent on the student. I think there's a whole bunch of people this would be terrible for. Possibly I'm one of them. But like I encourage the students to like spend a couple of minutes before the paper thinking about what would happen if they tacked the exam, getting somewhat stressed and then sitting it and just like basically practicing. Can I still do maths when I'm feeling really stressed? And the goal here, right, was they walk into the exam and they're like, I'm stressed. I can do maths when I'm stressed. I've done this a bunch of times. <laughs> uh, and like, yeah, for that student, it went like really well. And yeah, like, I think maybe this comes back to the thing you're asking me before, where I just like, I do have this like somewhat unjustified belief that like, <laughs> if you find something difficult, putting yourself in the situation where you have to try and do that difficult thing and just trying to do it is going to make you better. And I guess this goes wrong if the thing is too hard. It needs to be at the right difficulty level. And I actually think this is what like really good teachers can help with. It's like giving you things that are difficult enough that like they're making you uh, improve, but like not so difficult that you like crash and burn. But yeah, I think like if you're able to like manipulate the difficulty of stuff you're doing such that it feels like challenging, but not overwhelming, I think people should be quite ambitious with like trying to do that. Hmm. I thought you were going to go in a different direction when um, you're asking the student to imagine what would happen if they tanked this. And I thought you were going to say, imagine what would happen if you tank this. It will be okay. Like, what's the worst case scenario? <laughs> You'll be totally fine. No one's going to die. You know, this sort of thing. Like, it's just school. Like, you know, the, you know, this isn't actually going to determine the rest of your life. Yeah. What do you think about that kind of thing? Like, actually, like, trying to put this in some sort of perspective. So, like, trying to lower the stakes. I think that, like, that is going to be really helpful in many cases for dealing with the stress maybe is it at a different time 
yeah, I have said similar things to students. Actually, a friend of mine helped me with this the day before yesterday, uh, <laughs> where like I was just like in a completely kind of like mad panic about uh, I thought I'd done this thing and I like thought I might have made someone really upset. And like I didn't have very strong evidence that I had. In fact, I had like pretty strong evidence that I hadn't. But like it seemed possible. And I was feeling really terrible about it. And what she said was, how bad would it be? Mm. She's like, uh, actually, let's just like imagine the worst case scenario. It doesn't seem very likely. Seems like you don't think it's very likely. But like, actually, if you've made this person feel a bit sad, do you think they would endorse how bad you're feeling? (laughs) Do you think they would think that you should be like beating yourself up for like multiple hours about like how you've made them feel? And I was like, I guess no. (laughs) like no I don't think anyone else should feel this bad Mm -hmm. and I think like there is this thing where confronting the worst case can make it seem more okay or something yeah I'd be curious because my instincts if I was talking to students with absolutely no experience in this I would be very much emphasizing this like look this is nowhere near as big a deal as you think it is but of course there's the risk that if I was giving them that advice then it's like well but maybe they don't apply themselves as much because I'm saying like look it'll all be fine anyway how do you think about getting this balance right oh I actually think that's like basically true and I actually really appreciate maybe the situation is like really specific or something where like I basically think the student already knew that this particular student was just like pretty sure that they didn't endorse the level of stress that they felt. They like didn't in general feel stressed about their results. And they just like had experienced this phenomenon of getting into an exam and then suddenly feeling really stressed. And like, honestly, I think the best thing to do in this situation is seek support from a mental health professional, which is not me. For many people, this would be the great thing, but like not everyone for various reasons. And in the case of students, some of these reasons are actually just like family pressure or like views on mental health stuff. I basically think that getting support with stuff like that seems really important. And I'm actually like not the right person to give it because I'm not qualified. And maybe actually this is why in terms of like the advice we've ended up talking about, I've ended up talking about this really specific situation where I basically thought like, this is a wash. This is also a kind of extreme example of me thinking like, you can try really hard to like get better at a thing. Even if that thing seems like not something that most people would try and get better at. Yeah, the highest level take is that, like, you should probably just deal with this. And I think it's, like, people feeling stressed about work is, like, almost always bad. And I actually have some weekly held hypothesis that, like, kids feeling too laid back is, like, not really a thing. And, like, someone not trying and, like, not getting work done, I'd, like, be much more worried, is that person okay? Is the reason that they're unable to motivate themselves that they're like feeling bad or they're having difficulty with something that they like haven't flagged or whatever. I I feel like not enough stress is like an easy thing to point to and go like, oh, maybe if they felt a bit more stressed, they'd be able to like force themselves to do stuff. And I'd like much rather they like didn't have to force themselves to do stuff. That sounds exactly right to me. (laughs) Yeah. So like I pretty strongly don't endorse ride the stress and I'll tell you how to like do well when stressed in exams. But it does feel like there are some people who are just going to find some situations stressful. And like, if you are one of those people practicing the stressful situation in a safe environment seems reasonable. Maybe there's like a better example of this. One of my former students who is now studying natural sciences at Cambridge, I was helping to prepare for the admissions interviews. This student was extremely good at maths and physics, which is what you need to be to get into natural sciences at Cambridge. And so I did a mock interview with them where I asked them some math questions and some physics questions and they just like answered them fine and it was fine. 
And it transpired that they were like super nervous about the interview, but like not because of that. <laughs> they were super nervous about the interview because this student also found social interaction just like pretty hot. So we did uh, a second, actually, couple of interviews with them, not with me, uh, with another teacher, where they like practiced coming in and shaking hands and sitting down and answering like, how are you? How is your journey? Which are like the sort of questions you get asked at the start of the interview, which are designed to like help you calm down so that you can get on with like doing some maths or whatever. Um, and so I think this is like, yeah, another example of you shouldn't feel stressed in social situations, but some people do. <laughs> and so like practicing the stressful social situation in a place where you know it's safe. And if you like make a mistake, nothing bad's going to happen can like make it feel better. Or at least when you're feeling bad in the moment, you know that this is a thing you've done before. Yep, definitely. All right. So moving on a bit, obviously for a lot or even most students it can be really tough to stay motivated throughout the entire school year. What would you say to students who really struggle with motivation? I have spoken to students who struggle with motivation a lot. So I'm going to try and like work out what I said to some of them. Maybe the thing to flag is there are many reasons to struggle with motivation. And so like the things to say and the things for students listening to this to try will like somewhat depend on the thing that's going on. So maybe a useful place to start is like, is the motivation coming from feeling like overworked or stressed or burnt out or something like that? And this was like probably the most common thing for students I taught. The school was like pretty high performing, like it got very good exam results. And like lots of the students there were like working very hard and all of their friends were also working very hard. And so like this is an environment where like there's an expectation to do lots of work. And so like this can feel overwhelming. And I think in this case, so if you're just like, I have to be working, everyone else is working. This seems really overwhelming. This can lead to just being like, I don't want to do any work at all. And I think one really valuable thing to do in this case is like maybe like some of the most value I ever gave to students was uh, I explicitly gave them permission to rest or to switch off or to like not be productive. I literally mean I said the words, I give you permission to rest if you are not doing useful stuff. And I actually think maybe this is useful to like do now. So if you're listening to this and you're feeling like there's too much work on, you have permission for whatever it means <laughs> to like actually stop. And I think maybe the way to phrase this that like feels most allowable for someone who's in the mindset of like, I must work because it's really important that I work is like, it seems pretty true to say something like you should do as much as you can and no more. And the key thing about this is as much as you can sometimes is like zero. Mm. Because like, if in fact you are not being useful, and when we say not being useful, we mean like not being useful on nets. So it might be you're like working at like 2% capacity because you're really stressed and also like costing yourself the ability to work in the future because you're making yourself even more stressed and more stride and more burnt out. Then like doing nothing is the most you can do. And in those scenarios, actually doing nothing and saying, I am going to stop, I need to rest, is the best thing you can do. And so you should actually do it. Yeah, that just sounds like obviously great advice. I can imagine that being really hard to actually follow through with. Beyond, yeah, beyond listening to this podcast and hearing you saying, I give you permission, which is hopefully helpful. Um, do you have any other tips for how to actually make this feel okay? I think like... Maybe there's something I can point at, which is this is the case you have like pretty strong evidence you should be resting and maybe that will help. And so the thing I'm thinking of here is like a state 
that I think if I describe it, uh, even though I probably won't do a great job of describing it, I think like people who've been in this state will recognize what I'm talking about very quickly. And this is the state of like kind of working and kind of resting and feeling bad about both. And so this could look like having books open and staring into space. It could look like scrolling on your phone or watching TV or like messaging your friends in between like answering questions, but the like skew of time is like mostly the relaxing thing. And I'm doing air quotes, but we're just recording audio. <laughs> that like most of your time is spent doing the relaxing thing. And then sometimes you're doing the work thing. And actually what's going on here is like the relaxing part of whatever you're doing isn't relaxing you because the relaxing part of whatever you're doing is just making you feel bad about not working. But like, you're also not doing any useful work. And I think like, yeah, if you feel like you're in this state where like, you're not really doing work that's that useful and you're also not really relaxing. The claim I want to make, which hopefully will make it easier to then follow, is like it is strictly better to be actually relaxing because if you're actually relaxing, you will have the capacity to work in the future. Mm. Whereas if you stay in this state forever, you will never recover enough to get out of it. Yep, that definitely sounds right. Yeah, in our preparation for this episode, you uh, you mentioned that you had a specific strategy that you sometimes introduced in revision terms. Do you want to outline that? Yeah, so this is something that like I introduced for like a particular student and it worked quite well for them and I tried it with like a few others and these were usually students who had this thing of like feeling really bad about not working hard enough at least some of the time. Whether they ended up a lot in this like not quite working, not quite relaxing state or whether they just like were feeling more bad generally or whether they had like other things going on that made working really hard, like other stresses at home or in their life. There's like some class of students for whom always doing the really hard thing we were talking about before of like trying to do a paper and then really digging into what went wrong. is like just not possible a lot of the time. So what we would do is we would together find a ranked list or create a ranked list of like revision techniques, so things to do, tasks to do, such that the list increased monotonically, to use a maths word, <laughs> in difficulty and usefulness as we like went up the list. And so maybe the first thing to flag here is, do you see why it should increase in both difficulty and usefulness? <laughs> maybe we'll like pause or something. So the thing is like, if you get a task that is more difficult and less useful, why is it on the list? And like, if you have a task that is more useful and less difficult, why is the other task on the list? <laughs> just like, you've just flipped the order. But yeah, so you like, you rank these tasks. Uh, and so like, maybe let's give a couple of examples. So like doing the full thing of a paper that we talked about before feels like it's pretty close to the top of this list. It's like really difficult. It takes a lot of energy. You have to be feeling okay before you start because it's going to be kind of stressful. And also it's really useful if you are able to do it. And I think the key thing is like this usefulness is conditional on you feeling well enough to do the thing. Maybe all the way down at the bottom is like watching a video on some nice maths or like reading a textbook or reading over your notes. And I flagged earlier that like if all you are doing is this, the exam's probably not going to go very well. But like if sometimes this is all you have the energy to do, it is better than nothing. And doing the most you can and no more than that involves doing that thing and saying, actually doing this thing and knowing that like, this is the most I can do right now may feel better than doing nothing. If it doesn't feel better than doing nothing, it is not easier and more useful than doing nothing. So you should just do nothing. <laughs> in some cases, like uh, the lowest thing on the list was like, uh, do nothing. Uh, in many cases for my students, the lowest thing on the list was like, 
watch a video by 3blue1brown, the YouTube channel, which we will put a link in because he is like my favorite educational YouTuber. And it's like, there's a, just a very long distance between him and like everyone else who's trying to do educational YouTube stuff. And like loads of my students were massive fans. Mm-hmm. So once you have this list in front of you, mm-hmm. yeah, what does it look like to actually go through it? Are you trying to just like anticipate what's the hardest thing you could do or, or are you actually like trying to do like the hardest thing and then like dropping back? Like what does it actually look like to go through this? Yeah, so for the students, I helped these students tended on the whole to have like a pretty good sense of how they were feeling like often how they were feeling was like pretty bad but they were like able to tell how well they were doing if this is you uh, if you like uh, are often struggling and feeling kind of bad but you like know roughly how bad you are feeling and this is like an easy emotion to access then the thing to do is just like before you start working go like how am i feeling what do i feel able to do and like do the hardest thing that you feel confidently able to do for students who like had a less good grasp on that it like depends how good a grasp they had on that. If they had like a pretty poor grasp on it, I probably just like wouldn't suggest this thing at all, to be honest. Right. Because it seems like pretty costly to make a mistake. But then, yeah, the sort of thing you might do is if you have an hour blocked out to do some revision, or if you have like two hours to block out to do some revision, doing like 10 minutes of one of the things and then kind of stopping and going like, do I feel better or worse? If I feel better because I'm like being productive and it's not too stressful, then like carrying on with that. Or if you feel like loads better or like more energized uh, going up one level. And then like similarly, if after a few minutes you're like, ah, then like going down a level seems good. <laughs> or like several levels, depending on how bad you're feeling. Or like stopping. Yep. And let's, let's come back to this, like stopping's actually really useful here. Yeah, did you have more to say on this? Yeah, maybe the thing to do is like give a success criterion for like this switching off. So we talked about what might be a strong signal that you should like actually stop. I claim it looks something like I'm kind of working and I'm kind of not working and I'm feeling bad about both of these things. And I think one test of like, are you relaxing well? Is like, do you start feeling better? And it sounds obvious, but like, there's a lot of things you could do to relax. Um, And like, this will vary based on the person and like any generic mental health website that says really annoying stuff, like don't actually get therapy or have medicine, just like try this random thing. Often the lists of random things are like, not terrible to try as a like relaxation strategy. They're just like absolutely not a substitute for like actually getting help if you have a condition. But yeah, so going for a walk, going outside, talking to a friend, watching a favorite TV show, reading a book, like something you like doing that will reliably like make you feel better. And like, I think the key thing is like, yeah, check in with yourself after a while and go like, am I feeling any better? If not, switch activity. I think, yeah, like, is it worth flagging that like, if you're not feeling better, like that's okay. (laughs) Like you haven't failed at relaxing. <laughs> it's yeah, like so. you don't, don't need to then start feeling bad. But like, yeah, it, it seems worth like testing a bunch of things here. And like, if you notice there's a thing that like kind of makes you feel okay. For a lot of my students, it's like they have pets. It's like, go hang out with your pets. Hmm. Pet them, literally. Like, this is nice. Animals are nice. Maybe just, yeah, one thing you could do here is just, yeah, keep, keep a record of the things that actually work. So the next time you're in this situation, you can kind of go back to this and be like, oh, I remember the thing that worked really well, you know, a month ago when I, uh, you know, I was having a bad day. Let's do that again. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, what if you find you're someone who has occasional bursts of motivation, but then goes back to your default of being kind of unmotivated? What's the best thing you can do if you're in one of these high energy periods? Ah, oh, yeah, I love this idea. And I like, I don't think it's mine. Like, yeah, I, I have like a really specific thing. And like, maybe the reason I like this so much is like, this applies to me like pretty strongly. I have like very unstable motivation. And I think whoever I stole this from had a different word for motivation and this thing. And I think they use like inspiration and motivation or something. Yeah. So like maybe the thing is if I 
get periods where I feel really inspired and I have like lots of energy and I have the ability to do lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a motivated person is someone who's just like able to do useful things a lot, like pretty consistently or whatever. And so under this framework, does it make sense to say your question is what should you do with like inspiration? Yeah, yeah. So like if you know, if you can obviously recognize that you're in one of these moments of motivation or inspiration, what are the best things to do in this period? Should you be, if we go back to our example of preparing for exams, you know, is this a moment that you should just be like doing like a bunch of practice exams? Or is it a moment that you should be thinking about setting up processes to try and improve your overall habits? Or yeah, what should you be doing when you're in this motivated moment? Yeah, I think you've like (laughs) anticipated the answer to some extent. So I think like a thing to do, which I think is like a pretty bad idea for a lot of people a lot of the time, is the thing that's like going to be on your to-do list for a while and just like doing loads of it and doing as much as you can. So like, yeah, in the case of this student revising, it would be like, yeah, do loads of past papers because I'm feeling really inspired. And like the problem with this is (laughs) when you stop feeling inspired, (laughs) uh, what do you do then? (laughs) Because like, You've kind of like used up all of your inspiration, potentially used it up more quickly than like other things would do. And then you're like, oh no, now I don't have any more inspiration. Guess I've got to do nothing. And so like, I think the idea that I stole from someone, which seems like really important here, is what you do is you set yourself up such that it is as easy as possible to do the hard things when you are no longer feeling inspired. And so like, there's a whole bunch of things this could look like. Maybe one thing is, yeah, like for some people writing yourself a schedule, for what it's worth, for many other people, writing yourself a schedule then just like immediately fails when you lose the inspiration because the schedule was over ambitious and you like fail to do the first thing on it. And then you're like, well, guess this schedule is useless. Yeah. Should, should you be like thinking about writing a schedule that it's like, well, this is like, if I'm in this frame of mind, this is my schedule. If I like have like medium motivation, like this is a schedule. Or, yeah. Should you actually be thinking about yeah, anticipating your mindsets? Yeah, I think that could work. I think like other things that could work are just like removing all of the barriers to doing the things other than like actually doing the thing. So this could be, if you're going to do a bunch of papers, go select the papers, print them out, get yourself a nice stack of them ready, like silly things like that. And like know where you're going to work. If you have a quiet space at home, great. Uh, You're super lucky. Make sure that you're going to be able to use that. If not, like make a plan to go to the library. If you think you're going to struggle motivating yourself without friends around, make plans to meet some of your friends to revise together. Yeah, maybe tangential example of this is like one of the like best things I did actually for like learning more about effective altruism, the like, (laughs) I guess, sphere we both work in is um, I made during a period of inspiration where I was like, I want to learn loads more about it. I made a like bookmark on my phone's home screen to the effective altruism forum, which we could put a link to. And like what this meant was, and I was like quite deliberate about this. I like wanted to set myself up to do this was like, if I got my phone out because I had like some idle time and wanted to like kill time. I would click on the EA forum because it was on my home screen and then I'd read stuff on there. And this seemed like strictly better than scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, which is probably showing my age or like TikTok, which I can like (laughs) gesture at (laughs) having never used, but I hear is what the kids are doing now. What's maybe a concrete example that students could use this? So if if they're not trying to learn about effective altruism, is there like a one-to-one prompt here where it's like they could have a bookmark to X? Yeah, I think like maybe the easiest thing on their phone could be they could have a bookmark to their Anki app, which I think uh, we should probably talk about separately uh, about what Anki is. My claim is like this could be like the most useful thing to like have as an idle thing. But maybe some others, uh, because like using Anki is somewhat costly, could be like there's a forum called the Student Room, which has, I should flag, a bunch of terrible advice on it, especially about getting into Oxbridge. I think like some of the advice on getting into Oxbridge on that forum is like uniquely bad and actively harmful. Because mostly it's a bunch of like 14-year-olds spitballing about things they have no idea about. The exception to that is the like 
subject advice forums. I can only speak to the maths and physics ones here, but these are like really good. So like people post homework problems with attempts and help each other with them. There are like worked solutions to all of the old uh, step papers. Uh, step papers are a like very hard exam that you sit to get into the University of Cambridge to do maths and maybe for a couple of other subjects. So like maybe like some forum like that. If you're a student, there's like physicsforums.com has like a kind of similar setup where you can post undergraduate work and like some random PhD students will help you with it. Yeah, like think like find a website that seems like low cost to read, but at least somewhat useful, like pick that. Great. Now, some like even very bright students just struggle with motivation all year round. Um, you know, maybe up till now, they've, they, they've actually never experienced this moment of like inspiration or these periods of motivation. Mm. Do you have any ideas for how a student like that could sort of jolt themselves into at least occasionally feeling motivated? Yeah, I think I like want to slightly, yeah, slightly not answer the question or something. Sure. Uh, so like, so maybe they should, but like, I like the question. And I guess my thing is like, can they find something that they're really excited about mm. that like actually matters to them? And to like, some extent, I don't really care what that thing is. Mm -hmm. Like for, for many people we know, that thing is like uh, really helping others and like working out how to help others. For some people, it might be like just a really deep interest in one thing. Mm. I think like it does seem to like matter that you just have something that's like really interesting to you. Uh, and if you, haven't, if you haven't found that thing yet, that's a hard situation to be in. And like actually just spending some time looking for that thing seems fine. Seems maybe even better than like uh, trying to force yourself to do some more schoolwork. Actually, hmm. there's degrees here. Like school is instrumentally valuable. And what I mean by that is like it helps you get to later things which seem to like open doors to you. So like if you do end up inspired by something and like wanting to go and study it a bunch, like having good grades in school up to that point is like useful because you'll be able to go and study it somewhere good. But like, yeah, I think it is just like pretty important to just like find something, something that grasps you. And like, if that thing is like a subject, then you can just like directly go and study it. And if that thing is like something else, I guess, maybe it's like trying to do the most good. Maybe it's just like trying to acquire a bunch of money or like look after your family. There's like a whole bunch of stuff. Then you have to do this thing of like, what do I need to achieve in order to do that thing? And like, then maybe if you have that thing that you're shooting at, then you can go like, okay, how do I get there? And that could provide some motivation. I should probably also flag that like, if you're really just finding like really hard to think about doing anything, a lot of the time, you should probably like ask someone for help. Mm. Maybe this actually looks like talking to a doctor or talking to like an adult you trust going like, I'm just kind of feeling like I can't do anything all of the time. This sort of thing like is something that you can get help with. And Kieran, obviously you interviewed our colleague on like, uh, what was my uh, like personal favorite episode of like the podcast of all time people struggle with this sort of thing and like it's possible to get some help for it some of the time and I think actually like I really can't motivate myself to do anything ever does seem to be like a somewhat informative signal that you should at least like explore the idea of like yeah is there, is there something here that like someone can help you with yeah absolutely if listeners want to hit that episode that's episode number 100 of the 80,000 hours podcast yeah you can find that on the main podcast feed this may be a tangent, but I was just uh, curious, like as a maths teacher, mm -hmm. have you ever tried to engage people by finding like an existing interest and then like applying maths to that? So like if someone was really into sports, they got really into, you know, baseball or football statistics, they can obviously like apply that to their maths class mm -hmm. at some point. Have you ever like directly used that or even like brought that into the classroom? Yeah, I think so. I th or at least I think I've done something close to it. Yeah. So maybe one thing to say here is like, I think this does get done kind of badly. 
at least some of the time, which is like just like putting an example into a sheet that you think is like relevant to the students. Just like it can just fall really flat, right? Like maybe we'll stick in the notes the like hello fellow kids <laughs> meme or whatever it is. But like I get like kind of those vibes from it, but like I did do something close to this and like it really helped and it was like I just like really fucking love maths <laughs> and like I didn't have to pretend about this and like also this was true of physics and so I did do a thing where I was like this is just so useful and like this is why I think it's useful and this is why I'm excited about it and like and yeah I think I like didn't try that hard to guess at the students interests and then go like here's a contrived way of the thing we're particularly using being useful here but i did actually just talk a lot with lots of different kinds of maths about like these are some of the ways this thing becomes really important or really cool later and like i think just <laughs> anyone who's talked to me about like either maths or physics for any length of time will just like get that i just love these things is something that like i got as feedback from students a lot was i was just like really genuinely excited by the things i was teaching them and this like rubbed off or something also the thing you said is true right like math is just like really useful for like most things you might be interested in and so like many on many occasions kids were like what do you think about this which like it usually wasn't phrased as like uh <laughs> in what way can maths be useful for like x but they'd like mention an interest in x and i would like probably go something like oh did you know like this bit of math is really important in x not to try and get them convinced by that bit of math but just because like uh, that's how my brain works <laughs> yeah maybe the strongest example of this is like i did loads of music production as a kid and i understood like all of the music production in terms of physics or something like i just was like learning these things at the same time and there's just like so many connections between these two that are just like i don't really know how to understand like uh, large aspects of physics without thinking of it in terms of music and i have like no idea how producers who don't know as much physics as me uh, do it even though that like uh, the vast majority of producers in the world are like a way better than me at production and b uh, way worse than me at physics or something <laughs> that's very cool do you want to expand on that the the connection between physics and music I think like it's probably not that useful to hear like a half an hour excited monologue of like sure. random connections Alex sees or something, but maybe it would mm -hmm. be useful to like, I guess, point to the fact that these connections exist and that like, yeah, there's so like what's been good and written about this. Adam Neely, the YouTuber, has some like pretty exciting videos on music theory and like some of those, especially things about like equal temperament and like uh, microtonal music. If you like search for these terms, maybe we'll put some specific videos in. But like, yes, there's a thing about how the frequency spectrum is divided up into notes, uh, which is like somewhat arbitrary, but to do with maths. And there's also a thing about like how pianos are like not perfectly in tune or something, which is also to do with maths. And I like, I'm trying to like mention these things quickly or something. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like a book that's incredibly close to my heart because uh, my aunt, who was a physics teacher, gave it to me. It's called Measured Tones. Uh, and it's like uh, kind of difficult to get a copy of or something. And so it's probably just like not actually going to be a useful recommendation, but like, I don't know, maybe someone will steal it and upload it as a PDF at some point. It's like old enough, right, that like the last chapter is speculating about how maybe one day computers will be used to make music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just like, it just goes through, the, it's about the physics of music and it's great. And I loved it when I was a kid. It's very cool. Yeah, so how much should students be thinking about exploring and experimenting when they're in school? Yeah, great question. I think like 
my impression of students and actually, frankly, of like undergraduate students uh, that I've spoken to since I started advising is that like, in general, people make the mistake of like trying to specialize too early or something. And so like the language you're using is like somewhat uh, commonly used or something, but like maybe a good place to start if people like haven't heard these terms before is uh, that's, let's plug an episode of the show that was made before I joined. <laughs> and it's like uh, the first episode with Brian Christian who uh, wrote the alignment problem, or you can just like read his book. So he did, it is true that he wrote the alignment problem. The thing I'm actually referring to is uh, an earlier book of his, Algorithms to Live By. But like, while we're here, let's recommend the alignment problem too, because it's like sure. one of my favorite books, genuinely. And a good episode of the podcast. So getting back to, yeah, this like, yeah, do you want to like introduce this idea of exploration? Right. Yeah. So the thing the question was actually about was like, yeah, the, this like explore exploit trade-off where there's some claim that like you should spend some time trying a bunch of different stuff uh, to see what works. And then like at some point or maybe somewhat continuously, you should like uh, pick the thing that's worked best so far and then like uh, do loads of that. And like my claim is that in many situations, students should be doing like more exploring. So this might look like learning about some different subjects and yeah, trying to work out what they're super psyched on. This seems like a particular problem in the UK or something, because you just have to specialize really early. Kieran, I don't, have to, don't actually know if you know this, because you're not from the UK, but like at age 16, you basically have to pick like between three and five subjects. And that's then basically like all you do for the next two years. And then you go and do like one of those things at uni uh, and like, that's it. You're studying that one thing. Uh, like maybe you're studying two things if you're doing like a joint degree, but then like yeah, but why, when I say, like, go and study maths at uni, this is like, uh, this isn't like go and major in maths. This is like all of your lessons and classes and lectures and exams will be just maths and that's it. Right. Is that the case even if you're not studying maths? Like if you were um, in, in the UK, if, if you're doing a history degree or something, do you not take courses in, in any other areas? No, pretty much no. So there are some joint degrees. And I guess actually, yeah, maybe a useful thing to flag, which is like, not maybe my particular area of expertise, but something I know that like our colleague Michelle thinks is like kind of important is like, yeah, there are some subjects at university that like you don't have to have studied at A-level to do at university. And like you should at least consider those options, especially if you haven't studied them. So like one example is economics. You can have studied like maths, like a couple of other things, neither of which are economics. And this would be like fine in many places to go and study economics at university. And like, yeah, maybe another one is like philosophy where I think like three good A-levels, none of which are in philosophy, may well be fine in many places to go and study it, especially if you've like done some reading on your own. But yeah, like my impression is of like the vast majority of subjects at university, you literally uh, only study that thing. And then the cases where you're not studying any one thing, it's because the course is like a joint course. So there's like physics and philosophy or maths and philosophy in many places. Oxford has like the famous politics, philosophy and economics. There's other things like there's something called like human sciences at Cambridge or like there's natural sciences as well. But actually like natural sciences can involve just studying like maths and physics and like i don't know earth sciences and geology in the first year and then you drop like two or three of those and you just end up doing maths or doing physics or doing both this moment when you're you know 16 and you're making this decision to like mm -hmm. specialize basically this seems like an incredibly stressful and must feel like a very high stakes decision do you have advice on making this this call yeah, I should probably flag that, like, don't actually have that much experience of helping people make this call. Because, like, uh, for the last five years I was teaching, uh, I was teaching in what's called a sixth form. So this is people that have already chosen their A-levels. I think, like, useful things to say, there are, like, some subjects which seem just, like, generally better respected than others by, like, universities. And, like, if you ask, many of you, if you ask your teachers, they'll give you, like, straight answers here. 
Uh, and then another thing you can do is like look at entrance requirements for like competitive courses at different universities. Some of these will sometimes have a list of subjects which are like not counted as like one of the three subjects that are required. So like uh, one classic example is like general studies is just like not really counted as a proper subject or something. There's like more subtle degrees. So like some subjects that do seem like pretty difficult and pretty well respected for being difficult are like maths, all of the like straight science subjects. So like biology, physics, chemistry, history seems to be up there. Like English seems to be up there. I think like languages seem to be up there too, but like maybe just one or something. But yeah, like I think like you don't have to, you, in fact, you probably shouldn't pick a university subject when you're choosing your A-levels. This seems like specializing way too early. But like generating a list of like seven or eight subjects uh, that you might want to study and then like seeing if you can find a combination of A-levels that is like interesting to you and won't rule you out from studying any of them seems kind of important. And that actually seems like pretty possible by picking like A-levels that seem generally well respected. Mm. Yeah. So being as concrete as possible, when we're talking about exploration for young Mm -hmm. students, um, what does that actually look like? How can students get a sense of like whether or not this is the right path for them? Yeah, so maybe the thing we're gesturing at with, like, try to explore more is, like, you should, like, try lots of different things in, like, many scenarios. This is actually not very helpful advice, so let's see if we can break it down to be, like, what would this look like if you were doing this well? Uh, So I think, actually, one kind of important thing, and there's, like, a really funny and, like, kind of gesturing at something true, but obviously over-the-top Mitchell and Web sketch that we'll, like, find and put in the comments... The idea is uh, the number of mistakes you should make is like not zero. (laughs) So like, yeah, I basically think if you like try a bunch of things and like all of them work, I claim that you did not try enough things. If kids aren't drowning. Yes. Yeah, this is the sketch. And to be clear, I don't actually think that like kids should be drowning in pond. So like the joke of the sketch, because it's always funny to explain jokes, (laughs) uh, (laughs) is David Mitchell, I think, is like call in on a radio show and is like really angry that no drownings have happened in his village because like that means there must be like way more money being spent than there should be on preventing drownings because like to prevent all the drownings you must be spending like catastrophic amounts of money and like the right number of drownings is therefore not zero and like i think this claim is like yeah like it's it's obviously a silly example but i think the true thing it's gesturing at is like yeah the number of mistakes you make uh, should just not be zero because like, yeah, if you're only trying stuff you know is going to work, you're not actually trying anything at all. Yeah. Do you have, do you have examples from maybe, yeah, from maybe your, your own life or, or of students, you know, pretty informative mistakes or, you know, helpful? Yeah, that seems like a good thing to ask. So like a way of like framing this is mistakes may in fact be really valuable if they generate useful information. And I think this is this is the way to frame like exploration is like when you try a thing and it doesn't work out, this is useful to you because you gained information about like which things work and which things don't. So, yeah, what mistakes did I make that like seemed pretty useful? Yeah, so maybe one is like so my the A-levels I ended up doing were maths, further maths, physics and philosophy. These were not the A-levels I started off doing. I started off doing uh, maths, French, physics and philosophy and just like really hated French. And to be clear, like I feel some regret over not having studied it more. I like understand French kind of passably well or something like I would survive in France without uh, like Google Translate. And like, it would be obvious to most people when I was speaking most of the time that I was like English, Uh, but I would be speaking to them in French. 
and like, yeah, so like, I, you know, I, I liked the language. Uh, it felt important to me to like be able to speak a second language. And I just like didn't get on with the, the subject at all. Uh, it was just like not for me. And also I really liked maths and all of my friends were like having a great time doing more maths. And so I switched and I switched actually like too late or something. There was like a deadline by which you could switch. And I was like three weeks after the deadline and I just like begged and said I'd work really hard to catch up all the maths. And like luckily was allowed to. This like worked out really well for me. There's a uh, bit of advice in there to uh, even if you technically have missed a deadline or something, maybe you should just actually uh, ask. Maybe you should actually follow it up. But yeah, if something's really important, like don't let somewhat arbitrary thing like rule out the possibility of trying or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's something I just like definitely got very wrong for a very long time. So funnily enough, the mistake here is not exploring enough. Uh, So like I have been rejected from jobs I have applied to maybe twice, maybe three. Like it's possible there's like one or like two times I'm not remembering, but like I'm confident it's less than five times. This is like ridiculous. Uh, This is stupid. This is because I just like never applied for anything that I wasn't 100% sure I was going to get. And to be clear, I like didn't quite apply for this job. (laughs) So like, I was definitely not 100% sure I was going to get it. I was in fact, so sure I was not going to get it that I just like never applied and ended up speaking to Michelle about something else. So like, I just haven't been rejected from anything because I was like terrified of being rejected. Mm. And this seems like a very concrete mistake. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a particularly hard one to notice in the moment while it's actually happening. Do you have, do you have any tips for that? For, I mean, I guess we're, we're getting a bit getting away from school a little bit here. But yeah, just while we're on it. Yeah, I mean, like, I think there's like a bunch of prestigious stuff that like you can apply to as a school kid. Summer internships, uh, like competitions. Yep. Maybe like a just concretely good thing to say is like in most subjects that you might be excited about, there might be like some kind of Olympiad. There's the International Maths Olympiad is like maybe the most famous. There's an International Physics Olympiad too. I've like helped a little bit with the British team, written some questions for it, that sort of thing. And like, yeah, entering these and like <laughs> failing at a massive flaming like car crash because you've like uh, never done that sort of thing before. That seems like good evidence that you're like exploring hard enough. Yeah. I didn't enter any of these competitions when I was a kid. Oh, wow. I didn't know about them. Having said that, it's like, pr- it seems pretty likely to me that if I had known about them, I would still like not have uh, entered because I was worried about like, yeah, worried about doing badly. And that feels like it would have been a mistake. Yeah. No, that seems great to point out. Do you have any studying tools that you'd especially recommend? Yeah, I think there's like one that seems uh, really valuable for people to know about. Uh, I think we mentioned it earlier. This is a tool called Anki. I say Anki is a application that allows you to do spaced repetition. So like, there's a few things to know here. One is like, so spaced repetition. Let's put in a link to like uh, something that explains what it is in detail. Uh, like high level thing is like, there's really good evidence that it's like a very good way of getting stuff into your long-term memory. And like that I'm like confident in saying because there's been a bunch of studies and like, It's not just me seeing it work with some kids or something. It's like, yeah, this is a thing. So the other thing that's like, I think particularly useful about Anki, there's like lots of things that let you like uh, get stuff into your long-term memory. Uh, One is it's incredibly simple. It's just like uh, really easy to use. And the other is it has like a phone app. So you can like have it on your phone. So there's two parts. It's like making the flashcards and the other one is like reviewing them. And the reviewing them doesn't take very long and can be done on your phone. So like, this is if you're just like, idly using your phone. Or also like, I don't know, if you have a commute to school and you're like having to stand up because it's really crowded, like on a bus or something. And there's like not that much useful stuff you could be doing with that time. And like, actually it's not that useful that you could relax with that time. But like, potentially you could like do Anki review with that time. And that's like, let's say your commute's half an hour each way. That's like a free hour of work each day 
that you've got that like isn't costing you any socializing or isn't costing you any relaxation. It's just like, oh yeah, I could use my like commute for that or something. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, do you want to get into more specifics of how this works? Yeah, I think that would be useful because I think maybe if you're like studying maths or studying physics, uh, listening to this and you hear like, oh, you can memorize stuff, you might think, huh, not for me. Memorizing's bad in maths and physics. And like, I broadly agree or something. I certainly think that like a mistake that lots of students make especially in like science subjects is without trying to understand what's going on, trying to like memorize answers to styles of question. Uh, And this seems bad. It seems bad because understanding what's going on, at least for the first two terms, is like really important. (laughs) But like, what should you use it for? I think there's like an analogy here that seems really useful, which is that like vocabulary can be thought of as technology. What I mean by this is sometimes really big, difficult, subtle, complicated concepts that it's like really important to refer to in lots of situations. And like having a word for the thing just like makes it much easier to understand what's going on with that thing. And so like one way I noticed this really strongly, and you'll probably be able to think of some more examples than me, is like having played poker for ages, if I was like trying to explain to someone a bunch of tactics, I'd say stuff like, what's your range in this situation? (laughs) Or like, are you worrying about reverse implied odds here? Mm -hmm. And like, Actually, these both refer to like concepts that would take a few minutes to explain, but like being able to like have a label for it, it's like an efficiency thing in your brain where now I can just say reverse implied odds rather than like a two minute description or something. Do you have any examples? Because I mean, yeah, obviously we could get get more into the poker examples, but um, yeah, do you have any examples that people probably know, but maybe it's the kind of thing that you would learn, you learn when you're like 17, but like you can think back and think, well, when I was 14, I didn't know this. Yeah, I think I have like, an example that is not to do with either of the subjects. And I like didn't really want to like pull out uh, a physics or a maths example or something. Mm-hmm. But let's like embarrass myself here for a bit. And I'm going to use an example from a game I played at university called Ultimate Frisbee. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> so the idea here is like, it's not actually to do with the game Ultimate Frisbee. It's to do with like throwing a Frisbee. And so like, if you imagine that you're like right-handed and you're going to like throw forwards in like a somewhat normal motion, I'm like gesturing, but obviously this is just audio. <laughs> The frisbee will like fly flat and it may, if you sort of lean it to the right, it may like curve right as it flies or it may like curve left as it flies or it may like fly completely straight. And like there are words for this. So uh, the like curving right for this like right-handed backhand is like an outside in throw. Curving left is an inside out throw. And I'm probably realizing at this point that like if I picked like football or something, it would have been like much easier. (laughs) But like, I guess the idea is like there's actually like There's a whole bunch of different words that can describe like uh, different flight paths Hmm. of the throw. And I think what's kind of important here is like if I'm throwing and the throw curved to the right too quickly before it hit uh, the person I was throwing to, then like if I'm trying to adjust for this, I have to say something like I would like the throw I just threw to still start left and curve to the right but it should curve to the right more slowly than the previous one did. Mm. And like, if I have some vocabulary, I can say less outside in on that throw Mm. or actually just like less OI on that throw. And then I can just do it again. And like, this is just like meaning that I don't have to use as much cognition to like work out what went wrong and what to change. I can just like point to the thing that's important straight away. Here's a school example that's like simple enough that everyone will recognize it. I claim that learning your times tables is really important. Even though this is like rote memorization and not understanding. And like most people who love maths go like, oh, but you should understand stuff. You shouldn't just have to memorize things. But like actually 
if you know your times tables, then whenever you're doing anything that involves multiplication or division, and like something like 90% of maths you do at age 16 involves either multiplication or division, you don't have to, whenever you see a pair of numbers, spend time working out what their product is or like how to factorize a number. You can just go like, oh, it's that because I've memorized that. So this is like freeing up your brain power to do other stuff. That's an example that like, hopefully anyone listening to this uh, will have already memorized uh, like the times tables to the point they don't need Anki to do them. But like, there are other things like this. And I claim in like most subjects, there are things like this where like having the vocabulary is really useful. So like what this might look like when you're actually studying is when you come across a new concept in class, taking time to write down in your own words, detailed explanation of what that concept means. Uh, and then like putting that into Anki as a card. And then the idea is when you're like reviewing the cards, the question is not like, can I precisely remember the definition that I wrote down that first time? The question should be like, do I understand what this term is referring to? And like, if that is true, if you can answer that question honestly with yes, like on the app, you say like uh, whether the card was like easy to remember or not. But like, that's the thing you should be trying. Not like the word for word definition, but like, do I get what's going on with this thing? Do I get what this thing is pointing at? Great. Anything else on uh, on Anki? Yeah, then maybe let's flag that like there's lots of good resources on how to use Anki. We'll put like a couple in the show notes. One uh, like general one, which is most people's, uh, at least in like our communities, like first introduction to it. It's like by Michael Nilsson, I think. But then there's like a couple of specific ones on like how to use it for maths, especially maths at university to do with like memorizing proofs, which I think is like really important and somewhat surprising for people that haven't thought about it, but like isn't generally relevant or something. So let's just like put a link into that. Cool. Here's a question I had. Whether you end up with good teachers or bad teachers, it seems like totally out of control as a kid, just like totally good luck, bad luck. And it seems really hard to know how much of an impact that actually has. Do you think that people generally underestimate or overestimate the importance of having good versus bad teachers? Huh. My guess is that teachers overestimate the importance of having good teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is like not based on any evidence. I just feel like should have some prior that like most people think their jobs are important. Do you feel like you have a sense of like how much you think having good or bad teachers matters? And I could like see if I think that's well calibrated or something. (laughs) I'm deeply uncertain. Yeah, I I feel like I I never really had the experience. Maybe this is too harsh for anyone who listened to this, but I, I don't feel like I had the experience of ever having really amazing teachers. I hear you talking about things like, okay, well, like, here's like how I'm helping someone like through an interview. So I'm like, that sounds amazing. And I never actually had that. <laughs> and I imagine that would be incredibly helpful. But at the same time, I, I'm also thinking like, well, maybe just having these like tools is fine. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I, I don't have a confident tech. Thanks. That's like, uh, that's like kind of nice to hear or something. Yeah. I think maybe there's something like having a support network of some form is going to be like really important Mm. but that form like might not be teachers i feel like yeah we were talking earlier about like the importance of like having some friends doing the same thing as you Mm -hmm. it feels like that could be a a support network but yeah i think like i pretty strongly believe that like having some support network is going to be like somewhere between very useful and like life-saving for different students and yeah maybe i'm like lucky to have been able to be that support network for some kids Mm. And like, I think many kids I've like directly interacted with, I think I've had like very little positive influence on because like they had other good support often from their parents. I think like parents being invested in your education and like also just generally supportive of you and like not putting undue pressure on is like gonna do like a huge amount. 
Uh, so yeah, like it feels like uh, there's multiple ways you can get the thing and like teaching is maybe one of them. Mm. Maybe the other thing is like this motivation thing as well. Like I had some really inspiring teachers when I was at school and I had some like really inspiring family around me too who were like really excited by physics. Actually, that was a large part of my love for it. And we've talked about some of them already. Mm. But yes, yeah, so, like maybe teachers can be that inspiration. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. How much of the value of being a teacher did you see as being, I suppose, either this support network or just being someone who could kind of inspire kids versus actually being able to teach the specific material well? Um, I have a lot of self-doubt and I think I like did a pretty good job of teaching the material or something. So like, don't think it hurt. I should also flag that like, yeah, I was in a school where like everyone was like really keen on maths and at least somewhat keen on physics. The, the, the physics keenness like varied somewhat or something. But like, I was in a school full of kids where like, basically everyone was brought into like learning the things. Right. Uh, and this does just make my job as a teacher easier. Yeah, you, you didn't have the experience of being in the kind of like the classic movie situation of you go into like an inner city school and like no one wants to learn and you like, you're inspiring everyone. You were in a situation where the kids were kind of on board. Oh, uh, so the first three years of my education, I was in a school where I was like physically attacked on more than one occasion. My students did have chairs thrown at me and like uh, other students kids had like often very difficult home lives parents often had like very difficult lives and like that was a very different experience and much harder frankly it was much harder for the kids and it was like much harder for me but it was also much harder for me and like i don't think that like from that experience i got classic movie scene of suddenly all of the kids are like super inspired and love their subject i think like i was able to provide a stable presence in the lives of some of those kids or something and there was this thing that like staff turnover in the school was like kind of high to the point where like coming back after the first term the kids are instantly a bit better with you because they realize you're not rotating cover right you're like you're there to stick around or something i stayed there for three years so yeah there's like some of that for some of those kids as well i was the like adult that they trusted enough to tell about some like bad stuff that was going on in their life or something Mm. so like that was important. I think the, the key thing is like, I'm gesturing at like all these bad things. And I actually just think like the vast majority of the kids I interacted with would have been like fine with someone else. And I think like maybe a lot of the value was uh, helping the ones who wouldn't have been. But it's like somewhat unclear to me because I think I have the kind of personality where like uh, maybe those cases feel more salient. And it's like maybe it feels like somewhat generally true that like making like 200 kids across a couple of years like do 2% better. It's just like kind of hard to like notice or believe, but like helping one kid who is really struggling feel a bit better is like uh, much easier to remember or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Is it possible to be a bit more explicit about what good teachers do well? Yeah, thanks. There's like a sensible prompt. I think I've been talking about maybe soft skills or something, but yeah, there are actually some things that directly help with what most people conceptualize as teaching. So yeah, maybe one thing is something like, I think I've talked a couple of times about the importance of doing really effective practice and that one of the things that's like a component of doing really effective practice is making sure the difficulty level of the thing that you're doing like of the practice that you're doing is correct for you i think this is something that teachers especially good teachers can really help you with both in terms of giving you like suggestions for how to adjust the difficulty level of a specific task so that it seems better matched to your ability but then also in giving you feedback on whether the difficulty level should be higher or lower. So I guess like, yeah, maybe the, the simplest thing this looks like is just like telling you what sort of things to practice, but then like giving you some sense of like, these are ways you can make this practice seem easier or these are ways you can challenge yourself more are like particularly good things. And often teachers will have a good ability to judge how difficult the thing you need to be doing is in order for like you to make the most progress. 
So what's another thing that good teachers do well? Yeah, I think, again, trying to now push for like some just like simple everyday things or something is like, it is actually the case that good teachers just give very good feedback on tasks you've done. And getting good feedback on tasks you've done is one of the most valuable things you can get in terms of improving. So what might, might this look like? One obvious thing is just instead of just saying like whether you like did the thing correctly or not, giving some suggestion for like how you might improve with similar things in future. So this is fairly obvious and straightforward and you can definitely like get this advice from friends or even from yourself if you think about it. But like it's much quicker and can often identify things that you weren't aware of as mistakes if you have a good teacher giving you detailed feedback on a piece of work that you've done. I do think this is one thing as well where you get like increasing returns. So like the harder you've tried on the piece of work, probably the more useful the like detailed feedback is going to be. Yeah, then maybe there's like another thing which seems more like good teachers might be able to give you feedback at a higher level than just task by task. Uh, it's like a high level abstraction. That's what I mean by that. So something more like what sorts of things should you be focusing your time on improving? What sorts of strategies might you want to use in general to approach things? And this could be like approaching specific problems. It could also be just like in your life, <laughs> like teachers give decent life advice. They just see lots of students and students do tend to find similar things difficult or similar things easy. So yeah, like as well as just like, oh, I did this problem. How can I get it right next time? More stuff like what sorts of problems should you be doing? And like how much time should you be spending on those things? And like, how do you prioritize the various challenges that you have? This sort of feedback can also be really valuable and teachers, good teachers can be like a great source of this. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's always easy to know that you have a good teacher. Is there anything that good teachers do well that would be hard to notice or that might be hard to notice? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how reflective you're being, but maybe something I've tried to do a little bit in this interview, actually, that I think seems pretty important and might not be noticed is give really clear success criteria for tasks that someone is doing. I think this probably like merits some explanation or something. What does this mean? So the idea is if you're doing a task, it's really helpful for you to be able to easily understand what it means to do that task well. So like ideally you get some sort of feedback signal immediately, which suggests like this thing is going well. It's like, yeah, so one reason like many people enjoy rock climbing is the success criterion is like very straightforward, right? Like if you have not fallen off yet, it is going well. But like in many tasks, actually a teacher or mentor or someone giving you a phrase like, you'll know you're doing this well when is pretty useful in terms of you being able to then self-evaluate. And I think why this can be quite subtle is like, if you have a clear success criterion, probably what it feels like is just you feel like you're improving or something. You just like, you, you know how well you're doing at the task and that feels great because it like, then when you make adjustments and they improve your performance, you just know your performance is improving. So like sometimes this can come from direct feedback, but yeah, maybe like the best designed tasks or like instructions that have been given to you by someone really skilled. You don't even realize this has happened, but when you're actually doing the thing, it just feels very productive because you know whether it's being useful and you know whether you're improving. And maybe one of the reasons for this is either explicitly or somewhere implicitly in the like task design or structure, there's some mechanism which allows you to very clearly know how well you're doing. And so I think there's a lesson for this when teaching yourself, which is something like, 
how do I know whether this task is going well? And I think answering that question seems pretty important. And that's something that great teachers may well do for you without you even noticing. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds to me at least that you were a great teacher, but obviously (laughs) that's not the case for every teacher. And yeah, it it can be like pretty unlucky for kids to, to get bad teachers. Do you have tips for how to deal with that situation if they do find themselves with someone who's pretty clearly a bad teacher? Yeah, I think there are like some useful things you can do. And like, actually, my experience at school was like, not uniformly good or something. I had some teachers that were like, less good, or at least certainly at the time, I liked them less. And I maybe want to flag that like, I'm not entirely convinced these things are like the same. Mm. So I think like, kind of don't want to like, try and slag off members of the profession or something. And I also think it's like, definitely possible that like, a kid could think a teacher is bad. And like, this in fact, could not be true or something. Sure. But like, let's use the phrase bad teacher and like, not worry about it, but like, have flagged that it's like, maybe not exactly true. So you're like, if you think one of your teachers is bad, maybe ask the question, what is the most value I can get out of this situation anyway? It may be the case that you don't like their style or the kind of work they give or something, but they do in fact have a degree in the subject that you're trying to learn from them. If this is the case, then they can at least provide at least somewhat accurate answers to like questions that specifically relate to subject knowledge. So like the thing we flagged at the start about like really going through an exam paper, this is true for like doing questions in general. And I do think that like the best way to get better at sciencey subjects, which is just like the only thing I can talk about in general, is just like trying to answer questions and then like getting feedback when you have done that. And so like, to be clear, if your teacher just like refuses to provide feedback for you, or like is genuinely unable to because they don't have the subject knowledge, then like go to the internet places like the student room or like physics forum, if you're at university or like there's probably a maths forum too. But like, It seems at least somewhat likely that even a teacher that like someone doesn't particularly like or like kind of thinks is bad in a classroom setting may still be able to help you if you like bring them a question where you've like made the best attempt you can at answering it. And like either if you have answers available, then found out you're wrong and try to understand why you're wrong. And you can bring them this question and be like, "Uh, this was my answer. The book says this. I don't know why the book says that. I don't know what went wrong with my technique. But like, I guess there's this thing where like, If you've put a lot of effort into trying, it's like pretty cheap in terms of like time or effort or something for the teacher to like help you quite a lot Mm. by telling you what went wrong or telling you what the correct thing is. That makes sense. Okay, so that's if you've been unlucky and you find yourself with, you know, a bad teacher. What about if the opposite's true? What if you've gotten lucky and you found yourself with a really great teacher? Do you have any tips for getting the most out of that situation? I kind of feel like if you have a really great teacher, then like... (laughs) then they are going to get the most out of that situation for you or something. Mm. And I like maybe actually want to caution about there's ways this could be zero sum where it's like, if you think a teacher is really great because they're like always willing to answer all of your questions, maybe this teacher is just like really great. Maybe this teacher is just like somewhat too nice or something. And like, actually maybe like the thing I flagged a minute ago, you could have like a slightly lower bar for asking it with a really good teacher, but like it probably is useful to like still try really hard on your own first and then ask them. And like, I can see some failure mode where like, if a teacher is just like always willing to explain anything to you, this would seem really great. And like, frankly, it does just seem like a strong signal that they like really care or something, which I think is like uh, very strongly correlated with actually being great. But like maybe in that situation, if they're just like always willing to explain the thing, taking some time to like really try and understand it first seems like valuable actually in like making sure that you're like actually doing the hard thing and getting them to help. I guess like 
maybe the big thing is I think the ways in which I think teachers are really great are like being like safe enough and trustworthy enough to be like the person that you can turn to if like something's going really wrong. And I guess like maybe the thing to flag is like it could be that there's some teacher in your school or like some person in your college that that is true for, even if they like aren't directly responsible for you or something. Mm. Yeah, this is not quite like how to maximize having a great teacher, but like I guess point towards if there's someone like that seems really valuable to find out who they are. Yeah, so you seem to think that practice is pretty valuable in lots of different situations. Can you talk a little bit more about focus, deliberate practice? Yeah, this seems useful. So like, I think maybe the high level thing is like having a very clear goal for the practice. So like, what am I trying to do here? I think like some ways that practice looks good is if like the difficulty is matched to your current skill level. So this means like approximately you're finding it pretty hard, but like succeeding at least some of the time. And like, you can somewhat moderate this with like how stressed you're feeling or how confident you're feeling. Well, like if you're feeling a bit more stressed or a bit less confident, you can like make the success rate a bit higher. But like, basically, I think if you're like always getting the thing right, this seems too easy. And if you're like never getting the thing right, uh, this seems too hard. And so like, maybe we can go through a couple of examples. So like, when you're doing like past papers, there are some different ways you can manipulate like the difficulty of the paper. So on the end of like making it easier, if maybe you have like loads of past papers and you're quite far from the exam and you just want to like do something that looks kind of like doing a paper, but is somewhat easy because you haven't finished the material, doing a paper with some notes with you or doing a paper not in timed conditions or like making a sheet of notes. So like giving yourself time to make like one A4 sheet of notes that you're allowed to bring in, but like nothing else. Uh, these are all ways you can make things easier. On the other end, let's go into like pointing at this, like making sure you're training a really specific thing. If timing is an issue, you can like give yourself much less time than you would usually have available. And, like see how quickly you can do the paper. If the sort of technical mistakes we talked about earlier are an issue, you can like play an accuracy game. So this would look something like the score that you get in the paper is all of the marks you got right up to like the first mark you got wrong. And then everything after that counts as zero. Mm. That's like an extreme version. Slightly less extreme version is like the first mark you drop counts as one mark. The second mark you drop counts as four marks. The third mark you drop counts as nine marks and so on. So like squaring the number of uh, marks, things like that. I guess the key thing is just like manipulate the difficulty level of the task such that it is hard enough that you're failing at least some of the time, but like not impossible. Cool. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to add there? Yeah. So like one other thing that I think there's like some evidence for from sport, but this is like, I'm not super confident because I'm just like kind of remembering that I maybe read a study at some point. It's like the value of mixed practice. So this is like practicing exactly the same thing over and over again. Kind of feels great because you get really good at it. So you get like really high success, but like actually practicing a whole bunch of different things at once feels harder and feels like you're not improving because it is harder to like constantly switch, but actually doing the harder thing, like practicing the mixed thing, there's like some claim that it gives you better transfer. So I think the study was like talking about basketball free throws. It's something like one group of participants is like practicing basketball free throws. And so they just like always take shots from the free throw line. Mm -hmm. And then like, there's another group of participants that are just like uh, taking shots from a range of places that are like somewhat near the free throw line, but some are further away and some are close together. Some are exactly on the line. And like the second group just like makes a smaller percentage of their shots uh, throughout the training because it's like harder to like constantly shoot from different directions and you can't adjust as much. But then like when you test them both, even on the thing, which is like shooting free throws, the group that did the mixed practice, the harder practice does better. 
And I like basically have no idea if the study replicated, but it seems to be pointing at something that I just have seen work a lot, which is like actually practicing like a bunch of different things rather than like doing one thing until it's perfect. And then like moving on to the next thing and forgetting about the first thing does seem like kind of useful. Hmm. Yeah. What, what, what's an example from school? Yeah. So like, I think a good example from school is like revising for a like test, let's say in physics, one really important skill in like actual physics, as well as uh, physics exams is like working out what parts of your knowledge are required to answer a question. What is the question about? What are the relevant things? And if you have like practiced electromagnetism for like three days, and then you've gone and done like mechanics for three days, and then you've gone and done like, oh God, there's more to physics than electromagnetism <laughs> and mechanics. <laughs> is there a third thing? Quantum mechanics. That's mm-hmm. not mechanics. Yeah, you practice these different things and you're like, I guess then there's some danger of like, you get into the actual exam and you're like, don't even know what this question's about. Or like, you're just like not as practiced at switching between having all your mechanics knowledge like loaded up in your head and having all your quantum mechanics knowledge loaded up in your head and having all your electromagnetism like loaded up in your head. So yeah, there's like some websites create like big packs of like questions by topic. And I think these are like maybe net harmful or something. Yeah. So uh, what's a bad approach you've seen to learning? Yeah, I think... I think maybe we've gestured at like a couple of these already. So one is the like failure mode of I'm going to make everything look really neat and really pretty mm-hmm. and like not focus on the actual learning. And uh, maybe this is just like, maybe we're going to do some confirmation bias here of list some things and it's going to be like, ha, that thing I told you to do earlier. If you don't do it, you end up here. This I think is like a case of like not being clear about what you're optimizing for. Things looking nice is not that important. And so like if it is costing you time or energy to make things look nice that you could be using learning... And that conditional, like, may not be true. It might be that, like, you really enjoy making stuff look nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's some worth some time doing that. But, like, I've definitely seen people who just, like, I need to put effort in. So I'm going to put effort into making it look nice mm-hmm. and, like, not learn the stuff. Yep, definitely. What's another one? Another one, which is, like, somewhat related, is, like, reading over the textbook a bunch or, like, making a bunch of pretty notes. And what's going on here is, like, you're not practicing recall. And you're going to be tested on recall. You're going to be tested on like, can I retrieve the useful information from my brain? And there are like much better ways of making sure that you can do that than just like reviewing the information again and again. For example, reviewing the information in a spaced way using Anki that we talked about earlier. But yeah, like just reading over a textbook feels safe and nice because you're like, ah, the stuff must be going in because I'm reading all the correct answers and actually just like isn't very helpful. Yeah. Are there any other ways or any other major ways? I think like maybe on like a different tack, one thing I've seen fail really badly and I should flag that this is like a case where the law of equal and opposite advice bites really hard because for some students this thing works really well. It's like making a really specific timetable with like things in each of the slots and then saying, I'm going to stick to this exactly. Mm. This can be really valuable when it works, but there is a failure mode it seems like really important to be aware of. And I think the failure mode is like bad enough and likely enough in many people that uh, it's like really, really worth scrapping the whole method if you are one of those people. And that failure mode looks like missing one of the tasks and then that task becoming really aversive. Like in the episode 100, you and Howie talk about like uh, fields. And there's a thing where like the first task can get into an uh, field. There's another thing that can happen, which is just like, you don't get all of the stuff done on the first day. So you decide I'm going to do all of the things I dropped on the first day and everything I planned for the second day on the second day. And then you're like, probably not going to get all of those done. 
right? Because now you're trying to do even more stuff. Mm -hmm. And so then on the third day, you try and do everything you missed from the first two days and all of the stuff on the third day. And then like, this can fail in a variety of ways, like uh, just giving up on the whole thing or like all of those things being stuck in the Ugh field or like somewhere in between. But I guess the idea is like, if it's going to be really, really costly to fail to stick to your timetable, consider like making a timetable that has some flexibility in it like having some free zones, which are like, uh, I'm going to do some revision in this slot, but I haven't decided what it is yet. Because like, if I've left, if I like haven't managed any of the other things, I can put it in there. Or having a timetable that looks like you've got like blocked out times, but like, uh, you're going to choose what to do using like the list approach we talked about before or something like that. And I should flag that like, there are a bunch of kids I've seen be really successful by like writing really strict timetables working out exactly how they're going to do all the things and then just like doing all of the things one by one in order. And like when this succeeds, it works really well, right? Because you get all the things done. (laughs) Uh, But like seems worth flagging like when this could go wrong or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah, might it also be useful to set aside time to revise your timetable? You wrote this thing up two weeks ago and now like two weeks later, like it's, it would not be the best best timetable for you. Um, But yeah, rather than feeling like you're just locked into this thing forever. Yeah, that seems like a great idea. And I also think that like, this is the sort of thing that can be really good to do when you're feeling those moments of inspiration, if you do indeed feel them. But it's worth flagging that like, the thing you need to feel inspired by is like, really thinking analytically about like, what the right plan to make is, and then making that plan. The way that could go wrong is like, feeling really inspired and making a plan which corresponds with continuing to feel that inspired for the next two weeks. Mm. This would obviously be bad. (laughs) But yeah, I think like, doing some troubleshooting, working out things like the idea you generated with like putting in times to revise the timetable or the idea I generated like uh, having free slots that you just use to do any revision that you haven't done up to that point or other things like working out exactly which things have to get done and making sure those are in there which like not fill up the whole timetable but like yeah doing some prioritizing printing out papers if you need to use physical papers ahead of time finding the things that you're going to do like making the resources uh, making the Anki cards that you can review later yeah these things setting yourself up so that like when you're actually doing the things without that inspiration, they're as easy as possible to get started with. Yeah, these these are things that are like great to do with inspiration. Yeah, another thing I, I you've mentioned to me is that sometimes people will just fall into the habit of just playing the exam game all year long. Yeah, do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think this also refers back to this thing of like, I think it's like worth trying to understand the whole subject. Maybe what this looks like in class is like there's some thing you're trying to do yeah, maybe the teacher's explaining something or like asking you to think through a thing. And the thing you're thinking is like, but how much of this do I have to know for the exam? Mm. Or like, what is the sentence I'm going to have to write down in the exam? And my claim is like early in the year, far away from exams, this is the wrong question to ask. Because actually, it's just much harder to memorize a bunch of disparate, unconnected facts that don't have any relevance to you, each other, or real life than it is to like, form some cohesive understanding of the subject and then work out, okay, I'm going to memorize these things because they're going to like help me tie my brain to like big concepts. And I'm going to like practice doing some exams. But like, basically my claim is like all of this can come later. Mm -hmm. And like the failure mode is like, if you don't see the connections between the subject and if you don't see like the value in the subject, and if you don't actually understand the subject, then uh, it's actually just like much harder to learn all of the stuff you need to, to answer all of the questions you need to in an exam. Yep. And so that seems like a mistake. Maybe the one way that you should like play the exam game all year round or something is like, actually, if you have a flashcard set up all year round, then like 
checking, is there anything here that I should just memorize? My claim is like important vocabulary is in there. For your subject, uh, this is a great thing to ask teachers. Like, is there a fact I have to know? And this is different from an attitude of the only thing I have to know is the stuff I have to memorize for the exam, Mm -hmm. right? But like, it may be there are some, like it may be in your subject that there are just some definitions that you have to be able to regurgitate. Or it may be that there's like a procedure that you should follow frequently enough that it's worth like memorizing it. And if that is the case, then like having that as a flashcard at the start of the year means you'll probably have remembered it uh, like well before revision time and you can dedicate your revision to other stuff. So like, I think that's a way to set yourself up for success. That's great. Yeah. Were there any other bad approaches to learning you wanted to point out? Yeah, I think maybe one more is like doing practice that isn't deliberate uh, and that you don't see a clear path to like getting better from. And so like maybe this is just like doing a bunch of questions without like thinking that hard about like, so it could be like doing random questions from a textbook that like feels productive, but like because you've picked them randomly, I put air quotes in there. Actually, you've just like uh, picked the subject you're already good at or something because you can do those questions. It could even be like doing whole papers, but like not spending any time working out uh, whether you're getting any better because you're not actually like marking the papers or you're marking the papers. But like every time you make a mistake, you're like, "Ah, I hate mistakes and moving on. But yeah, so like I think the deliberate part of deliberate practice is important. And I think if you are doing some kind of practice and it's like not clear to you what the purpose of the practice is, and you like can't point to a specific thing you are expecting to improve by doing the practice, uh, my suggestion is it's worth spending at least some time either working out what the purpose of the practice is, or if you still can't find one, changing the method of the practice so you are clear about what the purpose is. All right, so th- this is kind of a broad question, but um, how should students think about personal goals? Yeah, I think interestingly, we talked a bit about like stuff I'd learned from poker earlier. I'm pretty sure my understanding of like how to set goals is taken straight from a mental game coach called Jared Tendler, who has like two books actually called The Mental Game of Poker and The Mental Game of Poker Volume 2, which I'm like at least somewhat confident it would be at least somewhat useful to read, even if you've never played poker and have no intention of playing poker. I think like probably more useful if you're like doing some sort of sport that you think you'd benefit from like good mental game in. But anyway, like what's the thing I stole from Jared? It's something like it's worth having some sort of like goal that you actually care about. So maybe a way of saying this is a goal that's intrinsically valuable to you. And this is like, you actually care about achieving it. For me, when I was at school, this was actually just like understanding physics. I just like really loved physics. I still do. And like, that was the goal for me. For some people, it might be like getting into a really good university. Maybe you'd be like the first in your family to go to university or the first in your family to go to this particular university. Or it could be like getting perfect grades. I don't know. Like these are like fine things to shoot for or something like that. Have something you're shooting for. And then the next step is spending some time working out like what things you should do in order to get to that, let's call it a terminal goal or like a final goal. And these I would uh, explicitly call process goals. And these might look like the sort of thing that you would have like per week or per month. And the idea is these are the things that you evaluate whether or not you've done them. And then if you've chosen the process goals correctly, you don't have to worry too much about like, how rapidly you're progressing towards your like final goal. You can just be like, am I doing the week by week things that are going to get me there? And then like you have this much shorter feedback cycle, which seems good of like, am I doing the things? If I'm doing the things, I'm making progress in the right direction. So like, what could this look like if your goal is get into a top university? 
your process goals might look like doing all of your homework to a good standard if you think that homework is indeed valuable. It could be like spending some amount of time each week uh, making Anki flashcards. It could be spending some amount of time each week talking to a friend of yours who's also really interested in the same subject. But like, it would be some things that seem like if you do that a lot, uh, you'll get like much closer to the final thing. And then I wouldn't worry too much on like a week by week or month by month timetable about like, am I any closer to getting into Oxford? <laughs> or like, am I any closer to perfect grades? Because this just seems like really hard to evaluate. And all you're going to do if you're constantly worrying about that is go like, no, I am no closer because I can't see any progress. So yeah, that seems like a good way of like approaching stuff. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned having perfect grades as being like a, a reasonable goal there. My first instinct was that that is maybe too extreme that I was like, I would, I would worry about people having a goal like that. Whereas now like failure is like almost everything. Am I off base there? I guess it depends on like the realisticness of the goal or something. For what it's worth, I don't think like perfect grades in school are like intrinsically valuable or something. And this actually seems worth flagging. And I'm like glad you pushed me on this. Like it may be that uh, getting perfect grades is like an important instrumental goal to like one of your next steps. It may be that there is like a university that essentially you need to get like perfect grades or pretty close to in order to get into. And if that's the case and like you really need to get there, it is reasonable to say, I want to try and get like as close as possible to perfect grades. I should flag that like, Perfect grades doesn't actually necessarily mean like 100% on every paper. (laughs) In fact, in the UK, right, like perfect grades means doing like above some threshold in like one set of exams at the end of year 13. Right. Uh, And that's literally it. Like nothing, nothing else to that point counts. And I guess actually, maybe this is like a good case to dig in on where like maybe the failure mode here would be like, I want to have perfect grades at the end of year 13. So like every test and every homework I do before then uh, must be perfect. Mm. This seems terrible, right? Like, because it's just like, it's not going to happen. And then you're going to feel bad. But like, maybe if you set process goals of like, have I like learned a concrete thing from looking over work that has been corrected each week? And like, if you've had some work where you made a mistake and you like are confident that you have like learned something from that mistake, then that's fine. And if you like made no mistakes that week, then like, whatever. That's like, it's obviously like not failing to meet your goal, but like doesn't seem better than like having learned a thing from the concrete mistake. Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe you could set that as a process goal. And like, that's what I meant by like, maybe the thing you're shooting for at the end of the year is like this ridiculously high score and your like final exams. But like worrying each week, am I going to get a ridiculously high score in my final exams? That seems like a bad strategy. Totally. <laughs> but like, that's the thing I'm motivated to try and hit. And so these are the things I'm going to do on a like week by week level to give me the best chance of hitting it. That seems like the kind of distinction I want to draw with this framework. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that it's important to have, you know, short term, medium term, longer term goals? Because I'm thinking like your your goal of understanding physics. Well, that seems great mm-hmm. to me. Um, but also it's not the kind of thing that you're going to like stress out about having not achieved at the end of the year, because obviously you haven't completely understood physics <laughs> at any point. But uh, obviously, yeah, I'm wondering like how you think about the goal of being like, I want to get into a top university. If you made that obviously like a vaguer, but longer term of like, I want to have a meaningful career or something like that becomes your goal. And then obviously like getting into a good university is going to be a step on that, but maybe it doesn't seem quite so disastrous if that doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, I think like this seems like the sort of thing that's worth experimenting with. I think like my personal preference is something like week by week goals and then like something I'm shooting at long term. And that's like approximately it. Uh, and I find like medium term things uh, kind of stressful and not that valuable or whatever. I can definitely imagine people for whom it would be very useful to have like one really long term thing and like something on the scale of months and something on the scale of years and something on the scale of weeks and then like some week by week stuff or potentially some daily stuff. 
feels like this is a great thing to experiment with while you're at school. Like, do you want to have like a monthly check-in with yourself or a six monthly check-in with yourself? Or is like just week by week on its own enough? Or is week by week on its own not frequent enough? And you should have like some really small thing that you feel like you're doing each day. Like, I guess, yeah, maybe reviewing the flashcards you've made so far each day seems like pretty useful. Uh, That's actually a daily goal I have at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's sort of useful talking about this a little bit. Part of being in school is just kind of figuring out what you're like, I think. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, you know, like throughout this conversation, you've often used yourself as an example saying like, oh, like I am X or like I have problems with this. And like maybe just like when you're, you know, 15, 16, 17, you just don't know that yet. So like, yeah, how valuable is it to just be thinking about things in terms of just learning about who you are? Yeah, I think like probably extremely. And yeah, maybe it's worth using myself an example here and like pointing at some things that I like did not realize about myself while I was at school that like might have been useful to realize and maybe much happier or Mm. something. (laughs) So like when I was at school, I like found organizing and forward planning extremely difficult and extremely stressful. Actually, this is like still true. And like, I think at school, I like didn't realize this. I didn't realize that like uh, these things and like a few related things, uh, but like, let's say these like, like kind of like thinking forward and like uh, making explicit plans were like unusually difficult for me or something. And certainly my self image was not such that I was like comfortable thinking that anything was unusually difficult for me. Uh, it was like quite important to my like identity, like relationship to myself at that point that I was like really smart or something. And so I like managed to do this like ridiculous reverse engineering of like, yeah, I'm just like not going to try very hard at anything and like not really do any more work that I can like possibly get away with. And like the nice thing about this is that like when I do noticeably worse than some of my peers, it doesn't mean I'm not as smart as them, right? (laughs) Because I just didn't try as hard. And like the funny thing is when you look back in your 20s and 30s at like the results you got in school, it is not in fact reassuring to say, oh, it's okay because I didn't try that hard. And like, I think actually a lot of what was going on was like, I did find some things hard and like should probably have just like asked for help with them, Mm. especially about like organizing my time and organizing my work. And actually, I think it would have been really valuable to like uh, notice this earlier because actually what happened is I got to university and like not doing any work uh, was no longer sufficient to like survive. Mm. Uh, And I had like very little understanding of like how to make myself do stuff. Uh, And that was like pretty hard or something. So yeah, I think like, I'm not sure exactly what exploration would have looked like in this case, but yeah, it does feel like finding out where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are or something. And then like internalizing that, like having some things you are worse at than other people is like fine and worth knowing about and asking for help with like sooner rather than later. And then like also recognizing your strengths and like playing to them a bit. Yeah. Maybe that's like one frame of exploration we haven't really talked about yet. Of like, yeah. Is there some stuff that you are unusually good at? And is there some stuff that like you find unusually hard and like, what can you do about each of those things? Hmm. Yeah. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah. Maybe there's something around like preferences of working habits as well. Like, so I really enjoy interacting with people (laughs) why I chose this job. And so like, I think for me having a group of friends who were interested in the same things as me and uh, wanted to talk about them was like probably the reason that I managed to survive doing very little work for so long. Hmm. Because, like, actually, I had this, like, image in my head of, oh, you're just not trying really hard because you're, like, not doing the homework. But, like, I was just spending multiple hours a day talking about physics and math that I was really interested in with my friends who were also really interested in it. And this, like, is, in fact, still, like, homework in any meaningful sense. It's just not the one I was asked to do. And so, like, actually, I was just, like, doing loads of practice, but, like, not noticing it was practice or whatever. Mm. 
Yeah, but like, uh, it seems possible that this is like not true for everyone. Maybe finding out like, yeah, like what work environment do you need? And like simple things like technological fixes, like if noise is a really big deal, like have you tried buying noise enhancing headphones? Does listening to music that like doesn't have any lyrics in it. So yeah, like for me, music with lyrics is just like catastrophic. It just like distracts me because I listen to them. Mm. But music without lyrics, I can just like kind of zone out, but like it stops any other noise coming in. So yeah, like playing with like physical setup and like, yeah, technology, this sort of thing. Like, yeah, what, what makes it easy for you to work? Similarly, what makes it difficult for you to work? And if there's stuff that makes it difficult for you to work, is there ways of like removing that? Do you have specific advice for preparing for interviews for uh, getting into top schools? Yeah, I can say a little bit. And I think I should like flag extremely hard here that I'm going to be talking about like the UK system and maths and physics only. Uh, And like maybe it's worth people that like don't have that in their mind skipping or something. My impression of like entrance procedures in the US is that like some of the advice in this section is like exactly wrong. Mm. So like uh, this does seem like very pretty hard based on like different admission systems in different countries. And I'm like very familiar with one and had like quite a lot of success helping students with one. Uh, But like it doesn't generalize. So that seems important. (laughs) Yep. We should have chapters in this episode. So um, yeah, you can go ahead and skip ahead to the next chapter. Nice. Okay. So let's say you're uh, applying to do like maths or physics. I'm just going to say physics, but like, I think most of this does generalize at least somewhat to maths and you're applying to like Oxford or Cambridge. So the first thing to know is that like, there will be a test that you have to sit for like anything in the space of like physics, engineering, natural sciences, and then also maths at Oxford. This test is taken before you have an interview for Cambridge maths. It's taken at the end of your A-levels, but like most of the other advice still applies. This test doesn't require you to know a whole bunch of new material, What it does require you to do is uh, be able to solve problems really well. Solving problems really well is a skill that you can practice. And it is a skill that to some extent can be explicitly taught. And I think it is like kind of upsetting and harmful that there is like some impression or like meme floating around in the discourse of like, oh, these tests have been like nicely designed so that like preparing for them doesn't help you that much so like don't worry about doing that much preparation and i basically think this is just false and i guess that much is like poorly specified so it could be like completely true or completely false depending on what you mean by that much but like it actually seems like if you're the sort of person that like will having got into one of these universities one of these subjects like doing a bunch of kind of hard problems that are really interesting and quite fun like should be enjoyable to you so it is like not that costly to do lots of preparation for these exams and my claim is it makes you like quite a lot better i have seen students improve like pretty substantially in the course of like a few months by doing lots of preparation for these exams and like this seems good and i actually think that at least in the case of physics, these exams are designed well enough to test like useful physics problem solving skill that preparing for them is actually substantially more useful than preparing for exams usually is. Because essentially like doing well in these exams is correlated somewhat strongly with useful skills in physics. Mm. So like my claim is that like it should be somewhat fun and actually not a waste of time to do lots of preparation for these exams. And then the other thing to say is doing well in these exams And then doing well in an interview, which is essentially just a verbal version of these exams where someone asks you some maths or physics problems and then asks you to solve them in front of them. Preparing for that skill is like not a waste of time because that skill is really useful if you're going to go and study that subject. Yeah, that all makes sense. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about the fact that this is clearly a zero sum thing. So meaning that let's say that if you hadn't have helped anyone out, Annie was going to get into a certain course in university, but Susie asked for your help. And then as a result of your help, she gets in and then Annie doesn't get in. 
So you have helped one kid get in and indirectly caused another kid to not get into this to this course. How do you feel about that? Yeah, um, to be honest, like pretty mixed. I think on balance, like fine. And I'll try and gesture at why. But like, I think it's an important thing to flag that like does seem like really sad or something that like there are just many kids who are really excited by physics or maths and like really good at it and really want to go to like these one of these two schools where like there aren't that many places Mm. and like a lot of them will uh fail and actually before i like mention why i'm like kind of okay with the things i did and also okay with like giving some generic advice now it seems also worth flagging that like the application process is just very noisy and i don't think it selects that well for the best students Mm. i think it like selects much better than many other systems people have tried. For example, I think like doing well on these tests and interviews is like a substantially better indicator of like whatever you want to call talent than like a personal statement that could have been like mostly written by someone sure. else. And even if it was written entirely by you, it's just like not that predictive of how much you actually like physics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Having said that, one of the best, if not the best physicists I ever taught did not get into Oxford. And like just should have basically mm. like i can point to many students i uh like helped prepare who did end up getting in who were just like on many measures much weaker than this student and like maybe don't want to give too many details because like i don't want this student to like <laughs> i'm <laughs> i think it's like very low probability they listen to it but i don't want to like make a whole deal out of this this one kid or anything sure. uh, but like the things that ended up going wrong on the day were like out of their control completely mm. uh, and like actually even when there's nothing specific you can point to that went wrong test performance varies and people are differently good at different bits of the subject and then like the test will have some harder questions on some subjects and some other harder questions on other subjects and like it's just not the case that if you take i don't know the 200 people that didn't get in and the 200 people that did get in all 200 of the people who got in are like much better than all 200 of the people who didn't. It's just like much more noisy than that. Mm. And I think this is like really worth flagging because if you are one of the people that ends up on the like bad luck side of the distribution, it just feels terrible and it feels very personal and it feels like it was something you did wrong. And I think that's really sad. Mm. Yeah. So do, do you feel like in your helping, do you feel like you're sort of making it more likely that the best you know, the kids who are actually most suited to this career are getting in. I mean, because it obviously could go both ways where it's like, well, maybe you've got like a really talented physicist who was just barely going to get in by not practicing for this. But because you've helped people who are a little bit less talented to be like really great at this interview process, they get in ahead of that person. Yeah, I think this seems possible. The context of the school I was teaching at is that like, uh, so it was not a fee paying school but it uh, selected quite heavily for mathematical ability Mm. uh, at age 16. And frankly, if you have the sort of privileges that are associated with going to a fee-paying school, it is easier to do well on a test of mathematical ability at age 16. Mm -hmm. So where does this net out? I think like some of the students who I ended up helping would have been like completely fine anyway. And I was giving an additional advantage to when they already had many advantages over other students. I do think, however, maybe a like majority of the students I ended up helping, had they not had the sort of help that I was able to provide, had a substantial disadvantage compared to students who went to like elite fee paying schools Mm. uh, where like much support is available. My like difficulty or uncertainty around this, however, is like there's also a whole bunch of students who are applying who like because they lived in the wrong place or because they did badly on one test when they were 16. Or like, because they didn't want to go to a school where everyone was doing the same four subjects, which is like a totally reasonable decision, by the way. And like, I would have made that one. Mm -hmm. 
all of those students I was not helping. And it seems like many of those students were like more disadvantaged than the students I was helping. So it's like actually not clear in what direction I moved the needle. I do kind of think that like everyone having access to competent preparation help and like the encouragement that like you can actually just practice and that like to be clear all of the preparation I did was basically saying like this is a thing you can practice and get better at go fucking practice and get better at it that's it there's no secret like if you're good at physics you'll like this and it'll be fun and then you'll get in with the caveat that like there's a bunch of luck involved Mm. actually like I think everyone should have that message my like sincere belief is that like everyone being told that like you should just try as hard as you can to get good at this thing and if you're really not enjoying the process of trying hard to get good at it this is maybe like a mistake because trying to get good at it is like quite similar to studying at one of these places Mm. like if you're not enjoying it now this is like maybe not the right path for you the world where like everyone gets that advice seems like strictly better than the world where like no one does or something and certainly better than the world where like only a few people do so i guess i was like at least directionally moving closer to the world i think is best yeah uh but like it's not obvious it's monotonic. So like, it's not clear that I was actually helping on the margin. Sure. I mean, it's kind of a nice thing about this podcast we're doing right now, where this is, this is in theory available to everyone for free. So like possibly if like this was shared widely, you can get this message out, you know, in a way that you couldn't have when you were just, when you were teaching. Yeah, this seems possible. It seems like more likely some very small subset of the people who are applying listen to it and it seems like at least somewhat likely that that subset is already like substantially advantaged over the general population but i hope this ends up not being the case (laughs) yeah no that makes a lot of sense yeah did you have any concrete ways of approaching these really hard problems yeah what i ended up doing was reverse engineering the process that i thought i was going through when i was like approaching a really hard physics problem And I did this by, like, also reading some research on, like, how other people tend to break down problems. And I ended up with, like, a four-step process that doesn't seem, like, that useful to describe on the podcast, but I've, like, written a document about that we can link to. And I, like, usually would, in, like, the first session or two of preparation, teach my students, like, what this process was and how to apply it. And then, like, all of the rest of the sessions were, like, practicing applying this process to a whole bunch of different uh, hard problems. And, like, I'll maybe also put in the document a list of, like, sources of hard problems other than the actual papers you're sitting Uh, Because as we mentioned, we want like more specific practice to come just before the exam. So like having like a wide variety of things to try and apply the framework to if you're starting to prepare really early seems good. Beautiful. Okay, so we're uh, we're almost almost wrapping up here. But I want to ask for students who have made it this far into the episode, they might be pretty interested in the stuff we do at 80,000 hours. Do you have thoughts on how early people should start thinking about their careers really seriously? Yeah, I have like some fairly weekly held views here and i think they like maybe don't match up uh with like everyone else on the team so it seems worth saying that like i guess the whole thing has just been like random things alex says that might be true (laughs) but like (laughs) this section is like especially random things alex says that like (laughs) might be true Mm -hmm. i think that like it seems really important to like have something you're shooting for and it seems like kind of wonderful to me that there are some kids who i've met uh who, who i've taught and then also some kids i've met like through other avenues who have the thing that they're really excited about be like trying to help the world Uh, and i think that's amazing and i think it can be a really powerful like motivator so like that seems great i think that like there's also a thing where the question of like how can we do the most good is just like 
unbelievably fascinating mm. and to be honest was just like a large part of my motivation and like still is actually just in my day-to-day life it's just like really interesting trying to think about like how to help people who are interested in like having a career that's really meaningful in the sense of like meaningfully helpful to other people this is like still fascinating to me that can be a really powerful driving force i think it seems worth flagging that like much of the advice we've written on the website uh, and much of the advice that like we have put in the podcast which was like uh, some of my first information about effective altruism and i just like really strongly recommend and like have loved since well before i worked here lots of this is aimed at like slightly older people mm. and i think one thing to flag here is the younger you are the greater the value of exploration and the greater the value of like preserving option value and so what this means is it seems like great to have this like high level inspiration and it seems great to be like thinking really hard and getting really excited about trying to do good but i would like somewhat strongly urge young students listening to this not to like fixate on one career super hard right now especially as it's quite likely they might be like 5 maybe 10 maybe even 15 or 20 years out from like actually doing the career and like really feeling that like now is the time they're having a lot of impact and so like the world might look a lot different then <laughs> and the sorts of things that seem really valuable to do might look a lot different then and so like building up a like pretty useful skill set uh, maybe building up some academic credentials maybe building up an understanding of a subject that you find really interesting and like seems at least plausibly useful and then also building up a good knowledge of like the sorts of things you do very well at and the sorts of things you find more difficult these things seem really really useful to do and like trying to follow the question of like how should i do the most good wherever it leads you this also seems really really useful to do but i would be like somewhat concerned about you like looking at our priority paths and picking one of them and going like this is the thing i'm going to do and spending the next 10 years shooting only at that yeah that definitely seems right to me so maybe we can upgrade this from random things that alex thinks to random thing that alex and kieran thinks but still may not be correct according to the rest of the team nice um, yeah i was going to ask What's the earliest age where you'd be comfortable with someone going through the materials we have on the 80,000 Hours website or even applying for advising? Seems really hard and like maybe incorrect to have like an age cutoff Mm. here. I think there's some weak version of this, which is like, if the ideas are really interesting to you, then like by all means explore them out of interest. And like, if you think it's like really important to do good, And then the actual like object level ideas are just like not really gripping you and seem kind of technical and obscure and kind of far away. Then like uh, (laughs) maybe drop it for a few years. (laughs) That seems fine. I think like most of my experiences uh, teaching like uh, 16 to 19 year olds, my guess is that like 16 year olds who are excited about this will get like a reasonable amount of value out of like many of our podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. My guess is they will get like a reasonable amount of value out of like some of the books that we often recommend. So like I would put Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill in this category. I would put uh, The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian, who we mentioned before in this category. I would put like The Precipice by Toby Ord probably in this category too. I'm like less confident about like the appropriateness of that particular book for like 16 year olds. And this is like, I don't have any like negative evidence that's making me worried here, Mm. but like I don't have like a strong reason to point to that book being like particularly great for kids of that age, whereas I have like some evidence for the other two. Other ones that are like, uh, have been floating around for ages and seem really good. Lots of my students, especially students interested in economics, have like absolutely loved Poor Economics by Abjit Banerjee and uh, Esther Duflo. This seems like a really interesting book to like 
read, especially if, yeah, like you're interested in econ, but maybe like haven't yet kind of gone like, how can econ actually help people? Mm. Uh, for many of my students, this was like something of a spark where they were like, this can help people. We can do stuff here. Yeah, I think like it's somewhat regrettable to me that I don't have like a thing I can point to on climate change, uh, which is like these books, because I know like lots of the students I speak to are like really concerned about climate change. I think like, you know, there's a couple of interesting uh, podcast episodes on the climate. Maybe that's like a reasonable place to start. Maybe this is mentioned a bit in the precipice and that maybe updates me a bit towards it being like good. Uh, But like, I would kind of love it if there was a book on climate change that I could recommend. But yeah, I think like maybe reading a book and maybe reading some of those books, we'll put links to all of them in the description. Some of these might be like a nice way of exploring like how excited you are by the ideas. Mm. Yeah. Do you have have any different intuitions around at what age it seems appropriate to try and immerse yourself in a community like the effective altruism community rather than just reading these books? I guess it depends what you mean by like immerse yourself in a community. Mm. So like if you find some other yeah, like we mentioned earlier, the value of like uh, having people excited about the same things as you. Mm-hmm. Like if you've got some friends that are also excited about this, maybe read one of these books together and like talk about the ideas with them. This seems great. Mm-hmm. Lots of universities have like uh, student EA groups. Uh, this seems like a really wonderful thing. And like if your university has one, go ahead and join it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if your university doesn't have one, consider starting it. The Center for Effective Altruism has like some support for like people wanting to start uh, university groups. And then like also there is just like lots of material floating around. And like, actually, I think like books are just like a fairly good way to start. I like don't have a strong view about what age is too young to start engaging with like, let's say the broader community, maybe online. But I think like, I would want to be somewhat careful about recommending it to like particularly young students, because like, it's a community primarily composed of adults. And like, that is just like, somewhat risky and also somewhat like, uninteresting for like, I don't know, a 14 year old to come and be part of. Yeah. So I think if you're a student, finding other students to talk about the ideas with seems like very easy to recommend. Finding a book that is interesting and talking to other people who have read that book seems like very easy to recommend. I think like seeing how much of the podcast interests you and listening to the episodes that seem interesting also seems like pretty easy to recommend. And I'm like, don't want to like confidently recommend more involvement in the community than that which is not me like flagging you definitely shouldn't mm. yeah when you're hanging around with a bunch of adults as a kid there's like uh, things to consider yeah do you have any advice for a young person who maybe they love the love the 80,000 hours podcast maybe they're really into these ideas they're reading these books and they find that's the thing that really motivates them much more than their schoolwork maybe they have this like issue where it's like they they love to just like immerse themselves in these like the kind of things that you and I talk about but actually if if it's the case that they really need to you know, just get good grades, uh, maybe it actually is becoming a problem. Do you have like thoughts on that on whether they should like maybe even delay like getting really immersed in the material? I think like it kind of heavily depends on like how possible it is for them to really see instrumental goals as being valuable. Mm. And I think maybe let's like talk about what instrumental goals are, because I think I've like used the term a couple of times. The idea here is like uh, an instrumental goal is a goal that like if it didn't have any effects, you wouldn't care about. Uh, but you care about because of its effects. And so like, actually, I think getting good grades in school is for many people in this category, Mm. where like, actually, if like, you couldn't tell anyone the grades, uh, and like, no one knew what they were. And like, actually, you just like, didn't really care about the subject, then like doing well, uh, would just like, not really matter at all. Getting good grades gets you access to good universities, uh, and gets you access to good education. And frankly, even at the time, getting good grades, probably in many cases, gets you like, better access to your teachers who like think you are smarter and think you are like worth their time. 
And like, this is like not fully true always, but like does seem at least possible in some cases. And so like, yeah, one thing you could do kind of go like, I'm going to work out what's going to be instrumentally valuable to me, like what's going to set me up to do a bunch of good later. And I'm going to try and do that. And I think like maybe one example I'm going to throw out here is like, if you have any interest in programming at all, it does just seem like getting really, really good at programming is like robustly useful for like many paths you could consider. Like obviously one thing we're currently kind of interested in and excited about is like alignment research and like broadly the field of like AI safety or AI governance. But like, it feels like having really good programming skills is useful for a whole bunch of stuff beyond that. And like, also just seems unlikely to get like that much less useful in the next few years, though I should flag that like uh, forecasting anything a few years out is kind of hard. Cool. Well, I think this has been um, this has been pretty great. But as a final question, if you had to just completely change careers and somehow you became completely indifferent to making the world a better place, what would be the most self-indulgent or most enjoyable career for you to pursue instead? This is like kind of hard because I think every job I've ever done which to be clear is like basically two jobs. (laughs) If I like, like I've taught in a variety of forms and I've taught a variety of things and I've done some like sports coaching and tuition and whatever, but like basically I've like done teaching and then I've like worked on the one-on-one team 80,000 hours. And like much of my like personal enjoyment in the like sense where enjoyment is more than just like precisely fun, but it's like fulfillment and satisfaction and like meaning. Lots of this just comes from helping people And I think importantly, as much as I'm like pretty motivated in the abstract sense by like the uh, like really like important feeling that like people who have not yet been born should like should actually get to exist and like huge amounts of suffering would be like really important to avoid. Like these like things do matter to me and I like care a lot about them and think a lot about them. But like actually on the day to day level, the stuff that gives me like real personal satisfaction in my work is like directly helping the people around me and in front of me. So the people I talk to now I'm on the one on one team and like the people I taught when I was in school. And so like, it seems kind of likely to me that if I like stopped caring about the like, so let's say big picture, like stuff, if I stopped caring about Mm -hmm. like the long run impact of my actions, I would probably do something kind of similar. If I like didn't have to care about money at all, I might like work somewhat fewer hours, probably quite a lot fewer hours. And like, maybe would be teaching still, yeah, maybe I'd be like doing some sports coaching as well. I think I have a friend who's like a professional climber and climbing coach. And I like love climbing and would like to spend like a lot of my time doing that. I think I actually like would probably not want to spend all my time doing that. I think it might like uh, become less enjoyable. Yeah, honestly, what this looks like probably is like working a little bit on the one-on-one team, like a few hours a week and like also teaching. Uh, like I taught this class uh, for the last few years I was at the school, which was like a, a like all of the things that I wish I'd been taught before I did physics at university, but like weren't in the (laughs) A-level. And I just like put them all together. And the thing is, all of these had like a pretty heavy maths requirement. And so I was only able to teach it because like all of the kids in the school were studying like further maths. So I'd like, I'd probably teach that course. And then, yeah, so I'd like maybe work with them on a team a bit, like teach that course and like do a bit of sports coaching. And what this is like gesturing at is like, this is just like doing a bunch of things I find like really interesting. And they're all involved, like work with other people And also I get to like switch context a lot (laughs) so I don't have to do the same thing that much. And I think that like if I was like really able to not care about like the long run impact of my actions in the future, I'd probably be like much less stressed doing all of these things. And that seems like I'd be like pretty happy. I don't know if that's like the very best life, but that seems like pretty good or something. 
All right. Well, this has been really wonderful. I'm just so glad you you were happy to do this. Thank you so much, Alex. Oh, it's been like a real pleasure. I'm like still not sure any of it has been even slightly valuable, but like uh, <laughs> I think it, I think it has. Been good fun. <laughs> I think at least one or two things have been pretty valuable. Hey, Alex here. So after the episode, I think Kieran and a couple of other my colleagues did manage to convince me that some of what I said might actually not have been totally useless. And so I thought it seemed worth briefly trying to like come up with a couple of key takeaways, given that this episode is like pretty long and goes in a kind of roundabout way because it's mostly just me and Kieran chatting. So yeah, what I came up with was something like, just try a bunch of stuff and see what works. Like this seems pretty good, especially early on. There's just like a bunch of value you can get out of doing a bunch of experiments and like getting stuff wrong and then seeing what works. So yeah, something like maybe consider this whole episode as a list of things to try. Try some of them. If they don't work, throw them away. But if they do work, maybe this is something you can use for a long time. Then maybe something else is like, you can just get a ton better at stuff by really intentionally practicing it. And I think I do make this point a couple of times. So like intentionally practicing works best when like you have clear success criteria and also when like the thing you're practicing is the right level of challenge for you. But basically like if you want to get better at something, just try and do that thing. That seems like pretty key. And then maybe like lastly, just this idea again of think carefully about what you want to get out of a situation. Like what are you shooting for? What's your main goal? And like really considering that question might lead you to act in quite a different way, like use quite a different strategy in a particular situation as maybe the one you would have defaulted to had you not been considering like what's my actual goal here? Yeah, maybe then the last thing to say, and potentially this explains some of my like jumping about between different ideas is as some of you might have suspected when Kieran and I were talking about things I personally found hard when I was at school, since this episode, actually, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. And so maybe there's some final lesson in which like, if you find stuff difficult, maybe just ask for help with it. Maybe ask someone else, like if there's some way of like (laughs) you finding this thing less difficult, because for me, like it took a bunch of friends and colleagues and my partner, like really supporting me along the way. But it's made a massive difference to my life already having a diagnosis and being able to access treatment for something which turns out I've been finding hard for a really long time. If you've made it all the way to the end and you're wondering whether it might be interesting to speak to me or one of my colleagues about how to do good with your own career, we're looking for more people to apply to speak with us one-on-one right now. We'll put a link in the show notes, but you can also just go to our website and click on the big button saying get one-on-one advice. All right, NDK After Hours is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode is by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links, including a couple of documents I wrote, are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Looking forward to seeing some of you soon.